to see by the way you look at me, Vince. If you can't stand the fact that I like to drink a few beers, you can't stand the fact that I do this every now and then. That I do this. That I do this every now and then. That I use colorful language. I use colorful language. You can't stand the fact. You can't stand the fact. You must conform. Defiance will not be tolerated. Conform. You must respect authority. Who the hell do you think you are? You will comply. Who the hell, the hell, the hell do you think you are? You must conform. Ladies and gentlemen, do the job! Compliance is good. Now I'm proud to say I know exactly who I am. Who the hell do this you... This is my arena. Who the hell do this you, is my who arena. Who the hell do you think you are? Vince McMahon might have stacked the cards against Stone Cold Steve Austin by having a little timekeeper. The esteemed Gerald Briscoe. Uh-oh. A bell ringer. Hall of Famer. Patterson. And himself as a special referee. Do you think there's a conspiracy, folks? You must respect authority. Vince McMahon, I know you hate my guts, and I feel the same way about you. Who the hell, the hell, the hell do you think? Defiance will be punished. You must conform. It's off to the end of the world here. You will comply. Welcome to Mr. McMahon's Utopia. This is my arena. And now, WWF over the edge in your house. Presented by Castrol GTA. Right, so I'm going to try and get I'm going to try and get through this quickly, but I, I thought I've got a bit of a story about my viewing of this show. So basically, I was going to the only time I could watch this was Thursday afternoon, but on Wednesday morning I was injured in quite a serious and violent attack. Actually, like legitimately injured. I had to take my sweet tiny cat Mabel to the vets because she's a very she's a bit of an anxious millennial. She overgrooms now. Mabel has previously shown some violent tendencies when going to the vets. So I invested in some rose pruning gloves that are like to the to the elbow, leather on the thing, swayed up there. She scratches, she just can't get through it. Well, everything's gonna be okay. This time, however, she sunk her teeth right into said glove and pierced my skin right on my left knuckle. Um, and when I got to the vets, I was bleeding still. And the vet was like, you've got to go to the GP. You need to get a tetanus shot, blah, blah, blah. So I went to my GP and they were completely useless. So I went to a walking center to get a tetanus shot. And they said, oh, a cat bite's much worse than a dog bite. You've got to take all these antibiotics. <laughs> I had to have my hand bandaged and my, my arm in a sling for 48 hours. And it was during that time that I was going to watch the show. And I should also say as well, and give a shout out to the health practitioner, because after she gave me my tetanus shot and she was waiting to tell me about the antibiotics, that's when I got my Clash at the Castle tickets. This was 12 o'clock on whatever day it was, Wednesday. And she literally, I explained to her what I was doing. She waited. So that's a really good use of NHS resources while she's waiting to get my wrestling tickets. <laughs> so basically, Thursday afternoon came and I was still in a sling and I was like, I don't really know what to do. I can't type. So I thought it's all right. I've been a, I've been a mug all this time. 
by typing my notes. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna say them into Siri, and this is how. So after five minutes, got interrupted with a work crisis and had to give up. And luckily, I couldn't play golf on Friday, so watch it then. But this is how far I got with Siri uh, and my note taking. So I'm gonna read this word for word. Some some good clips here of the Steve Austin feud with Vince, though I didn't massively like the shots of war. I don't ever really sickly life, and I do that as it was quite a serious subject was pro wrestling is a spice bit of fun so you're not 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 a fan of that and i wonder whether any of them actually is awful people might be in some of the shots in hindsight it's probably not great match one lod 2000 along with sunny versus the cycles of apocalypse gout and that's when i gave up the cycle of apocalypse gout yeah that's already the best evening Hello and welcome to the Random Wrestling Review. I'm back after a couple of weeks away and today we're covering WWF's In Your House 22, Over the Edge. Joining me today to discuss this show is Matt Roberts. How's it going, Matt? I'm good. How are you doing, gentlemen? Even? Yeah, very, very good indeed. It's good to, good to be back with you and good to see that you've made it this time. Obviously, I uh, missed out last week and uh, did get relentlessly piled on by Old Man and Tom, I should uh, let you know, last week for not turning up to last week's show. Any... Uh, any kind of defence, or were you just were you just being lazy? <laughs> Do you know, in uh, in my day job, I had an incredibly busy day, and basically, I had some work come in that there was absolutely no way I was getting out of. And yeah, I ended up having a super late evening. It wasn't fun. Trust me, I would have happily talked absolute shit about wrestling for hours instead. But instead, I, I had to go do some actual work that, uh, that pays my bills. All right, well, we'll, we'll believe you for now, but um, I'll, I'll prod you a little bit later on just, just to see if I catch you out and you slip up. Also today, we have Stephen from Mid-South Moments. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. So I think my name on this show now is Steve Coriander, actually, for my official title. So I'm going to try and yes. use that, adopt that as my podcast. And yeah, it's, been, it's great to be back, gentlemen. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I love that, Steve Coriander stuff uh, a <laughs> few weeks back that was uh, that was awesome stuff so we will call you that from now steve steve coriander from the i like it moment yeah from. it's actually better than my real surname so yeah let's go <laughs> uh before we get too far into things today if you are a regular listener to the show and we don't know about you i.e you haven't made your presence known let us know at rwr pod uk on twitter or facebook we'd love to hear from you and i'll give you a shout out on the show itself talking of shout outs i want to give a big shout out to a couple of international friends who have given us reviews both of which were left some time ago but I've only just recently figured out how to see reviews from outside of the UK on Apple Podcasts. It took me a long time I finally figured out how to do it. So firstly David from Pittsburgh who has given us six stars in the Tokyo Dome. Thanks very much David. Great to have your review and also Elite No No 1234 from Australia who commented that ours was one of the best podcasts they'd ever watched which is much appreciated. <laughs> I'm not really sure how that works but glad to see you're talking our language anyway. So guys today as usual going to go for a little talking point before we get into the show obviously we're covering in your house 22 over the edge but there's a show coming up later this year that i believe all of us are going to very possibly not sure Stephen, are you going i am are we talking about the clash at the castle the worst name of any pay-per-view in history <laughs> if you if we are then i am there yes i am yes we we, we are indeed going to talk about clash at the castle and just before we start talking about it you're right it is the worst name for any pay-per-view in the history of the world not just because it's a bad name but also it's not at the castle. No, it's not at the castle. <laughs> How far is the castle away? I mean, I've been to quite a few times. I can't remember. Is it five minutes? Half a mile? 
Five, yeah, it's five, not that it's close, is it? Walk. You can call yeah. it Clash at the Castle. It's still better than Great Balls of Fire. End of story. Oh, okay. I'll I'll give you that. That you are right. You are right. Fair play. Matt's so kind of because it's in because it's in Cardiff because it's in Wales. He's so defensive of it, even (laughs) though it's WWE's name. It's not like you came up with it, Matt. It's okay if you don't like it. And also, what kind of bragging rights does it give you to say that it's not the worst because it's better than Great Balls of Fire? I mean, that's not that's like saying you know. Chlamydia is better than gonorrhea. Basically, that is, isn't it? Yeah, good name. Clash terrib- at the castle. What's wrong with it, that? It's a terrible fucking name. Because again, it's not at the castle. I used to live in Cardiff. It is not. It's probably you're right. It's probably about five minutes walk. But it's just two distinct, very distinct places in Cardiff. Two distinct landmarks. And this is not as if this stadium isn't really quite famous. Hasn't mm. hosted FA Cup finals. Hasn't hosted major gigs. Like I was also there Millennium Night for the Manic Street Preachers. Millennium oh wow! Like when I was sixteen. So. Like, it's done huge things. It doesn't need to rely on the castle, which is down the road, to give it some credence. There's Bash at the Beach. They never actually have a match on the beach, do they? <laughs> yeah, well, they did. They did. The 1995 version was at a beach. Ah, uh, see, I, I knew there was going to be one. <laughs> this isn't at the castle. Well, and, but again, just because it was bad in the past doesn't mean that you can excuse <laughs> it being bad now. Anyway, what I wanted to talk about is what can WWE do to excite us? clash at the castle now there was some talk on social media recently mm. about the potential matches i think the rumor is that it's going to be roman reigns versus drew mcintyre Stephen, you've already made your thoughts known about that but why don't you kind of remind us of what you were saying there about that okay so i was at, i was at summer 92 at wembley and i had a pair of bret hart sunglasses around my neck but i had to support british border because it's hometown you know hometown boy except not hometown home country boy etc but this is not that and we talked. We had, we had a discussion on Twitter about this. This is a Scotsman challenging Roman Reigns in Wales, so not in Scotland for whatever they call the stupid name that the world title is now. Undisputed WWE Universe. Why is it called that? I don't know. But anyway, but that is not. I I think Reigns will be cheered. I think I think McIntyre will be booed. Like I don't want to get too in, too into politics here because you kind of walk the kind of fine line with this sort of thing. But we are we are a union, but we're different countries. Like when England plays Scotland at football, it's a big rivalry. You know, sometimes you feel. British sometimes we're English you're Welsh I don't know how British you feel but it's different it's different countries I, I don't know Matt a good example for you is how would you feel if it was let's think of a can't think of a good example in terms of I mean let, Will Ospreay is not a good example because he's not you no know, baby phase up and coming maybe someone you followed career the whole way through or someone someone brat new that I can't think of who's, who's <laughs> English challenge of the title at Wembley Stadium how would you feel about that it's not it's not the same is it and how do you feel about Drew being a Scotsman challenging for the title at, at in, in Cardiff before you answer that Matt True. try and answer it in a way that is about you being a Welshman not about being a hardcore wrestling fan yes yeah yeah yeah, yeah absolutely okay um do you know what I mean yeah for for, for me personally it no it, it really it doesn't really have that you know for being in you know being in Cardiff you know for this big stadium you know event type feature it doesn't really have that what's the, what's the word I'm looking for that that vibe maybe no mm. I mean for me personally I, I think what they need to do in order to make this event feel special they need to get behind some of the Welsh guys in NXT and I know it's NXT UK but they need to get behind some of the NXT UK Welsh guys and put them on the main roster now the very next opportunity the very next show and they need to push the living hell out of them, whether that be, you know, Mark Andrews, Eddie Dennis, whoever it is. I mean, personally, I, I've spoken with a couple of people, and I personally think one of the 
I think one of the best matches they could do, they should do Mark Andrews versus Ricochet for the Intercontinental Championship. Yeah. If they give that time, I think that could be an absolutely amazing match. And I think that could potentially, it's not going to get the reaction as if it was a main event and, you know, nowhere near that. But that is going to get as close to a hometown hero sort of great reaction as you're going to get. So I, I find this quite interesting because I agree with you in, the, in one respect. Drew McIntyre definitely isn't that hometown hero, especially in Wales. But I also think that if it was an Englishman in England, someone who's English at the moment on the roster, I can't think of anyone. So apologies for that. Um, but if, the, if it was, I still don't think there would be that big a reaction for them. I don't think this is about hometown heroes. I don't think this is about British wrestlers. I don't even think it matters if they have Welsh wrestlers. I just think they want to present a really good show. That's all they need to do. And a main event that actually lives up to the billing of however many people they're expecting to be there like probably 70,000 I imagine because it's you know it's a it's the Millennium Stadium or whatever it's called these days the Prince Ballet Stadium I think that's the problem is that we're and I think it's a bit of a red herring all this worrying about a hometown hero I think that's the big issue and I think WWE are going to fall for it because I think they think Drew McIntyre is going to be that to a British audience now it might be different if they'd have managed to get Murrayfield that might have been a different Mm different picture because in scotland i'm sure drew mcintyre would have got an absolutely raucous reception but i don't think there's anybody else on the roster anywhere who's welsh english or scottish who could get a main event reaction in their home country that would suit this show so i think wwe should move away from that and look for an opponent for Roman Reigns at the show that's just going to sell tickets. Now, I know most of those tickets they're hoping to have sold before they announce a match, and they probably will, in fairness. But to me, this this feels very similar to what it was like when in the early 2000s when WWE did those UK-only pay-per-views, which are really quite worthless in general. They really weren't up to much. They didn't mean much in the grand scheme of things. Titles very rarely changed, and you never expected them to. The quality overall was terrible. I seem to remember the first couple of UK pay-per-views tiger Ali singh appearing at he never used to wrestle ever and then and then just in a uk match he would be on there for some reason against some random opponent and i get the i get that real vibe from this which is wwe once again kind of going well we, we, we're going to get them anyway so it doesn't matter what we put on there i agree i think you've got they, they didn't give a summer slam which they could have done I, I i think and you've got money in the bank which is a huge show in the stadium you've got summer slam which is in a stadium and then we're the back end of it. And then after that, you've got Saudi. Saudi might be a you know freak show, bringing Goldberg back. And I don't think we want that. But in terms of big matches, you know, we're not getting, we talked about it online, we're not getting Cody versus Reigns, which is the only match that I really want to see in terms of WWE main roster stuff. Whether that happens this year or not at all is, is, is questionable. I don't know whether, I haven't been following the product week to week, so I don't really know what's going on with Cody now. I just don't think there's, there's just not much in there. And I presume Reigns will be champion. I think it will be Drew. And I, and I think Hopefully the undercard will be decent, but I can I can already see myself coming out of them thinking spending the most money I've spent on a wrestling ticket, crikey, maybe since maybe since WrestleMania 20, I think. Because the WrestleMania last year, the rest time, last time I went to WrestleMania, it wasn't as expensive as this. Um, and that was for a better ticket than this. I'm only in the middle tier, so it's not amazing in the corner. So it's not an amazing seat. And I think they've sold 40,000 tickets because the prices are too much. But yeah, I can see myself already thinking, I've had a really good day, potentially meeting you guys, my mates, having a few beers and stuff. And it's like, well, we could just gone anywhere and done this without going to the show. Like, And I've come out of a lot of shows, WWE shows over the last 20 years feeling like that. Uh, and I can I can sense it already, really. Mm, interesting. I mean, 40,000 is not shab- too shabby. I mean, if they that's all they sold, mm. it'd still do. I mean, they're not going to turn the nose up at it. But that raises another question for me is, who is this show for? So the prices are really expensive. 
I know, Matt, you've made some points on social media recently about the fact that when uh, WWE have historically come to Cardiff, because it's usually either a house show or a, a SmackDown or whatever, you've got mostly families, mostly young families come to the show because the so-called hardcore or whatever you want to call them fan base of WWE knows to avoid it because it's not going to be particularly important mm. or special. So you tend to get the families. But the families are surely priced out of this show. And the people who are spending the money and going on to Ticketmaster and desperately clicking on to get tickets are going to be people, older people, you know, in their 20s and 30s and 40s, no doubt, and probably even 50s. And they're getting the tickets. So are they going to be satisfied by a Roman Reigns, Drew McIntyre main event, especially when you consider that match has happened a number of times in the past couple of years? Do you know what? Yeah, I completely agree with you there. I mean, in terms of the ticket prices and that, I mean, honestly, when I saw how much some of them were, I mean, Good God. I mean, I, I really don't know what they were thinking. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've been to n- not particularly recently, but over the um, not too long ago. And I know I say that all the time, but I, I went to uh, some Cardiff house, um, some Cardiff house shows in the Motor Point Arena. And it, it's always the same. It, it is nearly always families. Um, it's nearly always families with kids. Um, you know, they, they're the ones who are buying all the merchandise. They're the ones who are buying all the tickets. So absolutely, that that's who you would have thought that the show would have been catered to. So when these ticket prices were released, it, it really was shocking. So whether or not they're able to get them, I don't know. I, I mean, in, in regards to, a, you know, a sort of Drew and Roman match, well, it may not necessarily mean anything in terms of to, to a Welsh crowd and, and a Welsh audience. I mean, the, the one thing that I will say, and I, I do think some people are potentially sleeping on this, because I, in terms of match quality, I generally think this has the, the potential to be a really, really good bond. Burner. I, I think it was Survivor Series. I'd have to double check that, but I'm sure it was Survivor Series um, was their last match, or um, maybe two years ago or something like that, which was very good. So I, I anticipate another really good one out of these pairs. So hopefully they uh, they live up to it. That they did it on the most recent house shows here, and funny enough, talking about show. families. I actually went with one of my mate's seven-year-old son who was incredible with his facts. He said to me, Did you, have you ever seen Hulk Hogan getting hit with a firebomb at like King of the Ring 92? I'm like, you're seven? How, <laughs> how do you how have you know what this is? It was like an absolute encyclopedia. So it was, it was a really good experience from that point. But he just said, I looked today and every single ticket in Principality under £150 is sold. So you can't get a ticket. So all of those... So I feel like maybe that's where those have gone. But you're going to have a lot of disappointed kids who are 100 miles away from the ring on the night. And it's like, this is... SummerSlam 92, my ticket was £25. Now, whatever that inflation is, double and 10% or whatever, I think. I mean, you're talking about 60 or 70 quid for that. And that was a pretty good seat, to be honest. Um, though, actually, we didn't didn't end up sitting in it because my sister forced her arms to the floor and we sat about 15 rows back. But that's a different a different story. But <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I, think they've, I think they've lost the plot a little bit with the pricing. And one last thing on this, then. Is there anyone that they could realistically pull out of the woodwork a part-timer of any kind or somebody somewhere that would potentially maybe not against Roman Reigns but maybe satisfy that kind of okay well we got something we got some kind of an attraction that perhaps other shows in America wouldn't necessarily have gotten so we can be satisfied with the fact that we've kind of spent that money on on our tickets 
I, your, fa- your faces say all, oh, guys. I don't think there is. <laughs> we both literally did the same screwed up facial expression. There. I, I, I just don't think there is. NXT is not what it once was. Like if, if this was three or four years ago, I'd be saying, let's get Adam Cole, let's get Gargano in there, let's do something like that, and it's a bit different. Like something like that would be amazing, like an NXT challenge match. Whoever wins a little tournament, there gets a challenge at the. I used to think for years they should do stuff like that in terms yeah. of like mixing it up into, in the top end, but I, I can't really see it. There's not. I mean, who else is there that's available? I don't. I mean, I, I suppose it's possible that there might be someone that we're not thinking of that's an AEW or something at the moment that could be free by then but I don't really know so you wouldn't either wouldn't at all expect like you would say you'd completely rule out and or wouldn't be interested in a Brock Lesnar appearance or even dare I say not likely but John Cena appearance something like that I'd be massively interested in John Cena but not 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 Lesnar fair enough do you know now that you mentioned a John Cena appearance that's actually a good point, because I tell you what, if you want to send the kids home happy, put John Cena on that show, mm. even if it's for like, you know, a brief appearance. I guarantee you all the parents would be unbelievably happy and reckon no matter how much they paid for a ticket, if their child sees John Cena in Cardiff, they will feel that they've got their money's worth. Do you, do you think that's still the truth? I mean, let's not forget that the, the generation who love John Cena's kids are, are grown up now. They're not they're not kids anymore. <laughs> no. So, I mean... Are you sure that's true? I'm not convinced. <laughs> I'm not being silly. I'm genuinely yeah. not convinced because I feel like if you're a kid now, you probably you either don't know who John Cena is or you're like, well, he's old. Don't care about him. I, 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 I still probably think that you probably think it's a couple of years ago that he was at his peak. That's the problem. <laughs> doing that thing over, you've forgotten that 10 years have passed since he was. I know. Age. I know. My, my my time clock is all over the shop. I know it's shocking. But but no, no. I mean, it's one of those that no, I, I'm no. In fact, I'm quite convinced. I, I still think that he still means a lot. To, to a lot of kids I think you know if you look at the reaction that he had when he came back you know sort of for that summer run that he had you know last year you know there was a ton of kids who were still fully behind him you know and let's face it he is kind of like a you know sort of child you know sort of hero the, the way he dresses the colours and sure. all that is sure but that doesn't necessarily sustain itself like you don't cross generate generationally that doesn't tend to sustain itself like the generation after the late the mid to eight mid 80s to mid 90s didn't like hogan they didn't didn't want hogan like there was a big period no. in the late 90s where he was hugely unpopular so what tends to happen is one the next generation likes the complete opposite to the generation before that's that just tends to be what happens so i take your point about john cena being that thing but i just don't i don't know i'm not entirely convinced but i think i would be interested in john cena match you know what i mean i'd be interested in that we're anyway. not getting john cena <laughs> we're probably not we're probably no. not I'm, I'm just trying to think of anything that might get us excited for clash at the castle anyway so here, here's one one very quick thing to make us all feel old 17 years since john cena's first world title so <laughs> horrendous it's a long time. You think the difference between Hogan's first WWF title and 17 years before that, well, would be Bruno Sammartino, wouldn't you? I mean, it's, well, I think, it's nuts. I think really. seven, 17 years after that would be his return almost. Well, the death of WCW and his return to yeah. WWE. It, w- it would the, be. As old man Hogan. So After the first WrestleMania, it would be 17 years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was only a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, I know that a lot of our listeners are going to Clash of the Castle, so enjoy it because we, we've, we've. I hope we haven't put the damper on it too much. So let's talk about Over the Edge 22, shall we? Uh, no, in your house 22, over uh, Over the Edge, I should say. And obviously, there was only two Over the Edge shows in the end because the second one was unfortunately the the uh, host of Owen Hart's tragic fall luckily we're not covering that today we're covering the one that came before that i put that in just to test whether matt had actually watched the right show that was the only <laughs> reason i mentioned that 
What were our expectations going in? Stephen, let's start with you. I'd say this t- this time period, I was dangerously obsessed with this with the WWF. So this, I was just about to see my GCSEs. I think if I'd had the internet then, for wrestling and other things you can find in the murky depths of the internet, I'm just not sure I'd still be around. I'd have, I'd have interneted myself to death. But yeah, I was so <laughs> I was just so into Steve Austin. Like, 96, 97, I was watching a bit of WCW on TNT. Steve Austin got me back into it. Mass, I was like absolutely obsessed. All I thought about was this product. And actually, I was quite looking forward to watching this one because I kind of, I, I kind of had vague memories of it, and I knew that the main event was going to be really good. So my expectations were, were strong for this week. What about you, Matt? Um, originally, when I first heard Over the Edge, I was thinking, "Hang on, isn't that the Owen Hart one?" So at first, I was like, "Oh, whoa!" Um, but then, you know, obviously. <laughs> I checked and obviously it wasn't so thank god for that I remember when I say I remember I had seen the main event I had a Mick Foley DVD collection many many years ago um where one of the well the match in the main event was featured on it so I had seen that one and when I looked at the rest of the card um it looked quite good actually and again like this sort of era is before my time really and it's before I started watching so I was quite interested to, to see a lot of the sort of early days of, of a few. So I was I was really looking forward to it. I think this is, I'm much like Stephen, this was a period of time where I was just insane about the product. Like just everything I get my hands on, I would read. Everything I get my hands on I could I, that I could watch, I would watch. Because we didn't, my family didn't get Sky or Cable until the following year. So the first pay-per-view I ever saw live as it happened was uh, WrestleMania 15. So this was a little bit before that. But obviously I would try and get the video it recorded from from anybody that i could tom his family had cable from i think like maybe march or april of 98 and so we went around there i used to watch nitro first of all when he didn't have skype yeah. that cable but used to watch nitro and found out what, what all the names of the wrestlers actually were because we've been pronouncing them wrong so we had been saying chris jerico chris ben benoit <laughs> javented guerrera uh, all kinds of different stuff because we'd never heard it we just read it that's all we'd done is that we'd only ever read the names so when we first saw them that was a re- real iron opener and sky one used to have like highlights they maybe had like live wire or whatever it was at the time the weekly highlight show so we used to watch that as well and so we're just obsessed absolutely obsessed power slam i read cover to cover over and over again like the power slams from this period i've read probably seven eight times cover to cover that's how obsessed i was with wrestling at the time i used to literally get power slam in the morning and the Pose and I would I would my my school walk to school was probably 15 minutes and I was so obsessed that I would walk down the road reading Power Slam. Yeah. So I need to get this in my mind as quickly as possible because it's just like yeah it was it was that day when that that envelope came in. I'm like oh my god I'm so excited. And if it didn't come on the exact day you'd be like annoyed until it turned up. It was such a massive thing. Like we made Finn Martin a very rich man, didn't we? Basically. We were so bereft of content. So I also used mm. to buy the pro wrestling illustrated when it came in but it didn't always come in and it was three months out of date by the time it came in as well um i bought the i used to have the pro wrestling illustrated almanac so you had a, like a yearly thing that they did mm. which is the almanac and in with in, in the almanac they have this amazing the best bit about it was this amazing retelling of wrestling history and it's kind of got like key dates all the way dating all the way back to like 1859 of important things that have happened in pro wrestling right up to the present day it was an amazing book i used to think but yeah so i just used to get my hands on anything and and and, and this was sort of around that period and I was expecting this to be pretty poor in general from an in-ring perspective, but with a an ace hot, really hot main event that would probably satisfy the whole show. Ultimately, this is the definition, or I knew this was going to be the definition of a one match card. One match card, and uh, we will time will tell. Although I'm pretty certain that that's what we'll find as we go through our review of this show. 
Talking points then. What do we want to pull out from this show? Matt, I'm going to start with you this week. What do you want to pull out from Over the Edge? Uh, I want to keep saying Over the Edge 22. <laughs> In your house 22, Over the Edge. Do you know, there the, the was actually, there was a fair few um, the, that I was looking to talk about when I'm, um, I found it quite difficult to, to sort of narrow them down, really. So in the end, I decided to go one uh, to go with one that I'm actually sure that you guys might be able to, to give me a lot of insight into as well. And that's Sable. Ah! <laughs> yeah, now... <laughs> Stephen's eyes lit, lit up then as if he was 16 again and he finally got access to the internet from now. No, I was always a, I was always a sunny man, but I was going to talk about Mark Merrow. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in this. So carry on, Matt, carry on. There we are. See what a fantastic link that is. I yeah. love it. Right. So, like I said, I mean, I started watching wrestling around about sort of 2001 and, and Sable made a very brief return uh, in 2000, I think it was 2003, so I, I'm vi- well, I, I'm vaguely familiar with with who Sable is. I'd seen some you know past clips and all that, and obviously she seemed to have been a very big star. I don't think I understood quite how much until watching this show. And my question, and basically the talking point that I'm trying to get at, is why? Because to be blunt, she was shit on this show. <laughs> I mean, promo-wise, just nothing. Mm. It, it was just incredibly robotic. There was, it didn't feel like there was any charisma coming from her at all. Okay, let's address the obvious. You know, at that time in the nineties, hot women. Everybody, everybody loves an attractive woman on the TV. Wow, there we go. Okay, understand that. But was that really enough to make her that biggest star? I have a funny feeling the answer is yes. Hey, hit me with some knowledge, guys. Tell me about Sable. I agree with you. She isn't the best promo. She's not the most charismatic. But I don't think that's the most important thing. I think there was a natural connection between her and the fans. Partially, that was her looks and the fact that she was willing to flaunt the assets that she had. But partially, I just think that that was a natural connection that she had with the audience. And so, obviously, what happens in this show, I'll give you the con- give the context for the listener in case they haven't watched. So, Mark Merrow and Sable have been together for a couple of years. They are actually they were actually married in real life at the time and what happened is they've been slowly drifting apart because Sable was getting all the attention when they came out to the ring Mark Mary used to get jealous about it didn't like it at all and so eventually they've got to this point where they're splitting and Mark Merrow has offered Sable a way to get out of her contract with with him as they've got like some kind of personal contract together which is that she has to get a representative to face him in a match and then if that representative wins she'll be able to get out of the contract but if she if the representative loses then she will have to leave WWE now Sable comes to the ring she doesn't pick a representative she chooses to represent herself in the match Mark Merrow then does a job where he kind of talks about how he's going to be the bigger man basically he's not going to he's not going to have a fight with her he's just going to do what he should have done a long time ago and let her out of a contract he lies down sable gets on top of him to pin him he he turns around just on the two count kicks out grabs her pins her sneakily and sable loses the match she she then walks out sadly and uh, it's as though she's leaving wwe and when she does that when she walks out there is I think genuine emotion. The crowd are silent. They're quiet. They're not happy. They're upset. When she, I think she plays it really well. Like I don't think she's. She doesn't need to be charismatic at all. She just needs to walk out sullenly, which I think she does really well. The crowd buy into it, and I, I think it's really well done. I mean, don't get me wrong. As a match, it's not even a match. But as an angle and a progression to a feud between a man and a woman, which isn't very easy to do, especially back then when there wasn't in, um, very many intergender matches or even very many women having matches. Of any kind i think it was done really really well yeah i mean i, I literally was just gonna say do you know i i totally disagree with you there I, I don't think it was done well at all i mean yeah you know in terms of a match 
match. It was a, it was a non-match, but when you say they were quiet because they cared, I think they're quiet because they didn't give a shit. Sable was genuinely one of the biggest stars in WWE for yet, that that those two years, the, the the year two years where they she's probably the most underrated. Her and China actually are two of the most underrated reasons why WWE came back in the Monday Night War. I really, yeah. I really, really believe that. And in all fairness, like, like I said, I, I absolutely you know take that you know that, that she was a big star, and you know like I said, I, I definitely heard all that. But in the context of, of this show and you know this angle. I just felt they were quiet because they didn't really care. You know, for me, like you know, just watching her, I mean, it was awful. <laughs> I, I don't think there was there was nothing to her. I mean, I get what you're saying that you know she doesn't have to be all charismatic and that, but it, it just came across as just unbelievably poor acting. I was just like, nah, no, no good. It's kind, it's kind of took a little bit of time and place. So I was just trying to look up how many copies Sable's Playboy sold because I know it was absolutely humongous. Like it was insane how much that. I mean, it might have done even a million. I don't know. I've got that number in my mind. I think it was insane, unless I complete uh, over the top on that. But so it was very time and place. It was just like you no, know, it was pre-internet. It was she had a bit of charisma about her. She got physical. She did some cool looking stuff. I remember she'd been power bombed. I think people by this point. So it was just kind of it was very time and place and I think that she was a huge huge star and it, it just doesn't really trans- you, you know it doesn't really translate to now because it just you know, the presentation of uh, I think that WCW used women more after this I think they had Nitro Girls wasn't quite so yeah. featured um, but it was just kind of a, kind of a bit at the times the bit that I was going to add is I, every time I watch a show from the n- mid 90s with Mark Mara on it either as him or Johnny B. Bad he's really good and I thought he was tremendous in this this segment he said something like he, he t- talks about them ha- they had it all and then he cradled her and he just was so so I thought I thought Mero absolutely nailed this I mean I just it's just it's just surprising to me that I think he had some injuries didn't he around this tumble before that kind of halted how good he was in the ring but I thought this guy had it to honest, and it never really worked out from the WF which is a bit of a shame I mean it's funny actually you say that because I'm pretty certain that that we both really love that Johnny B bad match I can't remember who it was against now DDP maybe might have been and Matt hated yeah. it and I was expecting Matt to really like it because I thought it was a really quite modern yeah. style wrestling match but for whatever reason Matt didn't like it I thought I just thought this segment was really well done I thought this was one of the best things on this show and I think the fans genuinely do care about Sable I really think they do the pop she gets if you you can watch any episode of Raw during this period when she came out even just to stand next to Mero so leading up to this when Mero would come out to the ring and she would be his valley the pop she would get would be massive and it was such that Mark Mero was able to sell the idea that he thought it was for him as they came out he would like raise his arms in the air as if they were all cheering for him and then she'd, he'd realize it was for sable because she'd tell say he'd tell sable to stay in the back and then she wouldn't she'd come out with him and she genuinely was massively popular during this period and i i don't think it was just for those natural assets if you like because if that was the case terry runnels probably would have received mm. the same kind of uh, reaction every time she came out i think you'd have found that when they really started to expand that women's roster they all would have done but sable was was extremely popular now, she wasn't quite as popular as she thought she would, was when she decided to demand, I think it was like a million dollars a year. But she she was certainly a really, really key part of WWF being able to catch WCW in the Monday Night Wars again, because they didn't. They, you'll, well, when we go through this roster, it'll become blatantly apparent. They really didn't have a roster. No. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dreadful roster at the time, really stick thin. Interesting one though, interesting talking point, definitely. And I, 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 thought, I think that's a really interesting one because Sable was really big. And um, I can understand though why 
people look at it now and go, why why was she a star? Because she doesn't have that much going for her, ultimately, other than the obvious. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, it is. Like, I, I mean, I, I remember I remember seeing a clip of, of her doing the powerbomb to, to Mark Merrow. And Chris, I mean, I remember how loud the reaction mm. was. So I was like, wow. So obviously, you know, she must have been a big deal. But yeah, it's, uh, in, in, in modern viewing, it's like, wow, that's it's interesting. I think the other thing is the storytelling. So the storytelling here really was episodic in a way yeah. that wrestling genuinely hasn't been since maybe the year 2000. Each week, there was a little bit, there's a segment that they would be involved in. Usually it would be really like this had been going on since before the beginning of the year. And this is now May. They'd have Sable come out with Mark Mero. Mark Mero would tell her to go to the back or, he'd, you know, have a go at her for some reason. Or she'd get involved in the match and try and help Mero. And then Mero would get upset that she'd done it. And it just went on weekly. But it was just a little bit different every single week, gradually progressing to this point where they then exploded and then they had this thing going on as well. So I think that's part of it. It's just the story was so followable. Like it was just it was just a really episodic week by week. I understand what's going on here. I know who I'm supposed to cheer for. I like who I'm supposed to cheer for. I don't like the antagonist. So I'm going to I'm going to respond accordingly. Stephen, what was your uh, what was your talking point? Do you know what? I was going to talk about how much I love Mark Mero, but actually <laughs> now I've, I've lost. I'm actually going to go slightly self-indulgent. If it's okay. It. This morning, I was a bit tired after going to see the Rev Pro show in London last night, and I, but I was still on a bit of a high. So my podcast listening habits these days, I tend to binge a show for a few days. I listen to you guys for like maybe three or four episodes over my commute, and then I won't listen for two or three weeks, and I'll come back to it. So this morning, I loaded up in your house one, and then three <laughs> words changed my day and my mood, and those words were Waldo Von Eric. <laughs> I listened on with horror as my disgraceful mistake was chastised on air. <laughs> and I could not believe this blunder. I'd watched both world-class documentaries. The non-WWE one is is incredible. The WWE one's pretty good as well. A number of times. I had no excuse. I felt sick, dumbfounded, <laughs> lost. Sam called me an utter C. I'm going to do the PG version of that. And I couldn't help but agree with him. I've been called that a number of times in my life, but there's no time that I've deserved it more than this. This is this show. You're allowed to say the word cunt. It's fine. All right. <laughs> An utter it. cunt. There we go. My first big C on air. <laughs> so I'd like to apologise to Ben, Tom, Sam, Matt, <laughs> Kevin Von Eric, Cowboy Bill Watts, the listeners of this podcast, and also Mid-South Moments. I promise this shame I'm now living in will mean I will strive. I've never to make such an awful mistake in the future. So I'm very, very sorry. Wow, what a talking point. I don't know how to respond to that, um, <laughs> except to say do better in the future. Um, I know, Lance Von Eric. What was I thinking? It, oh, I can't believe it. Anyway, there we go. There we go. You know, it's, it's funny because when, I, when I'm editing the podcast, especially when I'm not on it and like someone does something that's wrong, I don't know. Sometimes I think, you know, I might just cut that bit out. And sometimes because yeah, yeah. it's short enough, I can do it. But this one was like the whole part of a conversation. So I'm going to have to bring it up next week because <laughs> if I don't, it's wrong and it's just out there as if. No, you did the right thing, 100%. Yeah, yeah. That's just no good. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. (laughs) That's how it works on this show anyway. You fuck up, we point it out, we point it to you and laugh. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, complete fair play. So yeah, apologies, gents. And call you a cunt. And in fairness, in fairness, old man's done that to Matt and to James for absolutely no reason before. So at least he had a reason. (laughs) 
with yourself, Stephen. Yeah, big time. So my talking point, and I, I'm going to try to pull out a specific match, and that is the six-man tag match. But it's I want to the talking point I want to make is about Owen Hart. So he's in a six-man tag match here. It's the Nation of Domination, which is a weird thing in itself, and we'll get to that. It's Owen Hart alongside Dealer Brown and Cameron Mustafa, and they're against Triple H and the New Age Outlaws in a six-man tag match, which comes in just before the main event. So ultimately, this one ends when uh, the New Age Outlaws hit a spike pile driver on Dealer, but when Triple H goes for the pin, Owen Hart attacks him from behind and hits the pedigree himself for the pin. So Owen and his team win. What I wanted, the reason I want to talk about this match is it's all right. It's not a bad six-man tag match. It's, it's fine. It's, it's nothing to shout home about. You're not going to remember it for very long, but it's, it's decent enough. It does its job. The reason I want to pull it out, though, is the performance of Owen Hart. And I want to pull it out specifically to contrast it with what I was talking about in last week's show about Adam Cole on the NXT TakeOver show. So here, Owen Hart is now a heel. He's just turned heel again by joining the nation. He'd been a babyface for sort of five, six months after Brett had left the company following the Montreal Screwjob, and he'd been up against DX when DX were still heels. But with DX kind of starting to turn babyface, and Owen Hart not really getting anywhere as a baby face because it just didn't really suit him if, if we're, we're honest he went back to being a heel and joined the nation but during the match here so Owen Hart is still probably an upper mid carder at this point in, in WWF like he has a pretty high profile series with Ken Shamrock over the summer so it's still kind of a, still kind of basically bubbling under the main event he is the perfect he plays a heel perfectly because throughout the match he gets out he gets outdone and outsmarted over and over again he's constantly being embarrassed in a little way all the time and drawing more and more heat. So when he wins, it really it really brings the heat on him because he shouldn't be able to have won because he's not good enough. The only reason he could win is because he cheated and he finagled and he did all kinds of different things to get himself in that position. And it made me think about his performance here and also Jerry Lawler's work on commentary. And for the same reason, because throughout the commentary, Jim Ross is outsmarting him. J Jerry Lawler will make a point and then Jim Ross will just completely shit all over it. So Jim Jerry Lawler will be making a point on behalf of the heels, on behalf of the bad guy side of the aisle. And Jim Ross will basically outsmart him and, and make everyone realize that he's just an idiot. And the essence for me of being a great heel is that you as a person portraying that heel have to have very little ego. That's how you play a great heel. So you can play an arrogant heel, but even then you yourself have to have a lack of ego. You, you've got to be able to basically show ass all the time, constantly, regularly be outsmarted. And this is what I was talking about last week with Triple H being kind of the first in the WWF, the first heel to sort of, to, to remove that as a template and go, you know what, I'm just going to be the game, the cerebral assassin, the bad guy that says he's the best and then is the best when he, when he, when he wrestles and as I said last week you can do it if it's just one person but you can't do it if there's more than one and since then at all hills seem to do this they don't seem to be able to they don't seem to want to show enough kind of embarrassment they don't want to be humiliated ever and it's I feel like it's because the performers themselves have too much ego and possibly also they're thinking about the cash that they'll get if they get some cheer so you know if you are Adam Cole or you are a bad guy of any kind if you, you're Roman Reigns whatever and you can still sell t-shirts then you ain't going to lose a lot of money whereas of course if you don't get any cheers at all you're never going to get any t-shirt sales any merch sales and you won't get that money but it, it just really stood out here when i was watching owen hart having contrasted with having watched the adam cole johnny gargano match the week before and listening to jerry lauder's commentary and i don't think you know i, I was thinking about jbl and i was like thinking about Corey graves who were perhaps the two big heel commentators since 
Jerry Lawler, I suppose, in the WWE, the sort of two main heel commentators since then, they too have too much ego and they too often win the argument. They too often kind of show the babyface, the weak babyface play by play up. And therefore they have this kind of coolness about them which doesn't work because they're supposed to be heels. And so it was just really interesting. We've done a lot of criticism of Jerry Lawler over time for the things he said and the way his attitude to women and things. But in terms of this show, just the way he constantly allowed himself to say stupid things and be outsmarted by Jim Ross in terms of their verbal confrontations was just like, this is what a heel commentator should be. That, that way, you don't ever grow to like him, and you end up not liking anybody that he likes by association. Mm. I, I thought that, sorry to jump in, Matt, I, I thought that there was some some really Let's interesting stuff in this. <laughs> and I think that Owen was great, was was really, really great in this. I think he, he was the standout. And it was clear, I thought, that, you know, this match had a lot of time, didn't it? This was, eight, I think, over 18 minutes, and they were clear, you know, they were clearly, um, you know, wanting this to fill some time and, ha- and have some quality, which I don't I don't think it necessarily quite got to but there was some in, there was some interesting stuff during this um shall i just shall i just go through a couple of points that i've got on this match yeah, then, yeah. even though the 2006 version of dx didn't do very much for me i did i did find myself sort of nodding and tapping my foot along to the um theme their theme like at the lamest 40 year old in town now <laughs> i want to do a little bit of analysis on triple h one of triple h's old catchphrases the let's get ready to suck it thing now, is he saying let's get ready to suck each other off? Because I don't, I can't see it any other way. And I think he should be com- commended for that if that is it, because that's very progressive for 1998. <laughs> and that is far and away the most impressive thing about Triple H. Forget his NXT work. This progressive, I like a lot of Triple H. There was a. Side- I think we've had. I think we've had that conversation. Have we done before. that already? I, th- oh, I don't. I'm not sure it was with you there, Stephen. Oh, okay. I know that on this podcast, we have discussed the fact that what does let's get ready to suck it mean? Are you saying yeah. the crowd should get ready to suck it because you don't like them? Or are you saying that we're going to, all of us are going to get ready to suck it because we, we like it? I don't yeah. know. But whatever it is, it's a very mixed message, especially when you're telling all of your enemies to suck it as well. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. What do you want there? Is it pleasure or is it pain? So uh, China D-U-Z Viagra in the crowd. Don't get it. Not funny. Waste of ink, waste of life. I enjoyed (laughs) um, Billy Gunn shouted whammo after successfully landing a press slam. Four classy gents in Milwaukee had their tops off and their chest had suck written on it in the right order with arrows pointing down at their genitals. Well, I say suck. Actually, it was it was S star C K because the word itself was too rude. They couldn't just write suck. So um, this is this is another thing we've discussed on this podcast, which is what the why are you why are you blurring out the word suck? Like it's not that. a swear word. It's fine to say suck. I should tell a story here. So there's a there's a guy that we used to go to school with me, um, old man and Tom. He contacted me recently. His name's Spicer, and he he's he's a lovely guy, but he was he was a little bit naughty at school, if I'm perfectly honest. <laughs> and I, I used to be in his tutor at school and uh there was this one but he's having an argument someone was doing the i think he was doing the register i think he was taking the register this was like when we were about 13 so goodness knows why they were making kids do it do that then as if it was some kind of really great privilege but i don't know he was i think he was doing the register he was calling out people's names and there was one girl that didn't answer and didn't answer he, he called it out again didn't answer again and she for whatever reason said oh i'm here spider i'm here and he was like well for, why didn't you bloody well say so or whatever and he got um he got a little bit of an argument and and then he just turned around and just went, suck it to her, like <laughs> in front of the teacher. And basically the teacher went, get out of here, you dirty little boy. <laughs> 
so spicy if you're listening listening and if you can remember that i remember it and now everyone else will know about it too but it was uh, it was absolutely cracking so yeah i just thought i'd say that but yeah why why is it started out why, why? i don't know there were a lot, a lot of crotch chops going on in the playground when i was uh sort of 15 16 when dx were around talking about um jim ross and jerry the king lawler there was one line that king gave to jr which made me wet myself which is when jr was talking about the number of siblings in the hart family and lawler completely deadpan asked ross if his parents are siblings <laughs> i was just like you could just tell that ross i thought ross we'll probably talk about this in the next half but i thought ross was in a there were two the two people in the worst mood on this night were jim ross and dave Meltzer. So we'll get to that probably more at some point later on. But Jim Ross was in a real bad mood. I thought some of his comments, but we'll, I guess we'll talk about that when we go for the matches, aren't we? But yeah, I, I thought this was good fun. And there was lots of various bells and whistles that kept this entertaining while it went on. Matt, what did you think of the match? It, it, it wasn't that much, I don't think. I mean, I, I don't know that much about the food at the time. I mean, how long had the food been going between these two factions at that point? Was it a while? Do we know? Not particularly long. Um, they no. Hadn't, they hadn't been in a feud before wrestlemania it must have been coming out of wrestlemania that they started to enter into a feud and obviously the other thing to say is that at the time the nation were in a feud with everyone because the nation had had a long long feud with ken shamrock and they were still in that feud theoretically they were now you had the farouk had obviously just left the nation and they were having a feud with him and they now had the feud with dx as well so they're pretty much in a feud with everybody at the time we're going through the whole roster um yeah okay i mean in that case then uh, that's fair enough i mean I, I kind of felt it i thought it was a little bit sort of further on from that so i felt the match was a little bit misplaced it I, I felt there should have been a little bit more bit more of a fight type feel it, it was you know it was okay um you know it, it wasn't bad by any stretch but i completely agree with what you said ben i mean owen hart did definitely stick out i i haven't seen an awful lot of owen hart so i i do quite enjoy getting to see him you know knowing how how well respected he is and how big a fan a lot of people are of his work so Every time I do get to see Owen Hart, I'm like, okay, let, let, let's see what this, what this is, you know, what this is like. Uh, and he did definitely stick out in, in a good way. I very much, uh, very much enjoyed it. The, the only thing, um, and I'll come to this later as well, to be fair, but the only thing in the match that did bug me a little bit, and this is a criticism on the entire show, which I very nearly brought up as a talking point, was, is it just me, or did every friggin' match have a pile driver involved? Yeah, yeah, there were lots. Somebody of pile needed to talk to the agents and mm. say what the hell was going on with the you know putting the matches together because every flipping one had a pile driver in and it really bugged me at this point i think that's a fair i think that's a fair criticism i, I guess the only defense i'd make for them is that what what were they going to do they had a shit roster they had to they had to get <laughs> to get mm. the matches over somehow there's one other thing i want to talk about this this match for and that is triple h and Stephen, you might be able to provide some you might be able to provide a kind of contemporary thought about this because i remember at the time it not being particularly clear that triple h could be a main event in the future mm. at this stage so obviously matt perhaps you watching it thinking oh triple h might even be a main eventer by this point but he certainly would go on to be one but certainly i remember at this time it was in no way certain that he would make it yeah i, I completely agree you, i'm sure you remember this as well but there's there it was always it's always going to be steve austin but there's there's going to be some times when steve austin cycled out and then someone else gets a go and that was obviously you know mankind was a lot mcfoley was around for the, probably 18 months or so uh because he had the feud with the rock after the rock won the title but i'm sure there was a time around then because everyone was kind of feuding with each other weren't they and i did wonder if they were going to go go with triple h early in 99 as a baby face in that role earlier than what you know when they went with mankind and that was kind of the first time that i really thought this guy could probably do something as a baby face 
Then they flipped him after WrestleMania 15. And actually, even when he won the title, I, I, I wasn't buying it. And they did that really silly thing with Austin at SummerSlam so they could extend it a month by having Foley win the title for a night. Triple H wins it. Then they had the thing. I think there's some sort of schmoz finish, maybe a cheating finish to Triple H. And then we didn't get the triple threat in the end. But it really wasn't until early... After he lost the title and won it back, the Foley feud after that, I was a believer. It was a Raw Rumble match, and that bit was great. But it took a long time. It took it really took a long time. And I, and I did like Triple H back then. And I did kind of I did want to get behind him as like the next babyface coming through. But obviously, he took a different a different route. And he never really. I mean, I suppose he had his moments as a babyface, didn't he? But I don't think he ever had a like a very very good run as a babyface ever, did he? Because they they kind of mucked up the 2002 one, and that was the that was probably the chance. Well, I could I could talk about this for for ages because in that particular bit anyway, in terms of him turning turning heel or not, because there's a whole thing at the end of 2000 when he should have turned babyface. He was yeah. in the feud with Kurt Angle, and the obvious way to go was Stephanie to cheat, turn 100%. on him, go with Kurt Angle. Triple H becomes the babyface, and Triple H mm. would have been then the big babyface to face Austin after he went heel <laughs> at WrestleMania 17 while The Rock was away. That was the yeah. ob- like it just made perfect sense. And some weird shit happened then where Triple H or somebody in the back. That wasn't going to happen, and then they all do that. So I could talk about that for ages. In terms of him here, I just think, yeah, it wasn't clear. And I think actually, even though he's not on this show, the person who was most likely to break into the main event, or I think that seemed most likely to break into the main event at this point, was Ken Shamrock. Yeah, he great. Was, he'd only been in the company like just about a year by this point, but he had he was really he was having really good matches with The Rock, who was still really green as well. So to have those matches with, with The Rock was actually quite impressive. And he had the look. He had a re- he was really popular, and of course he would. It seemed he would be easy to flip and make a heel opponent for Austin in the future. It would make perfect sense that he could be a killer heel to face Austin and maybe be, be Vince's chosen one if you like. So it just wasn't clear at this point that Triple H would be a main event guy. He was kind of there was still like this idea that he was Shawn Michaels' baggage guy. You yeah. know, obviously Shawn Michaels had just got had just got injured and, and was off for four years, but. You know, Triple H was was kind of swimming on his own for the first time, and we were kind of seeing him. He was he was decent, but he didn't have that main event edge to him at all at this point. I don't think. And you're right. I think it wasn't until he feuded with Foley in early 2000 that he really kind of felt like a main event main event guy. The other one where they didn't didn't turn him um, was the night after WrestleMania 17. So I remember that show. Like he all the way through, you had Austin's with McMahon now. So what are you gonna, what are you going to do when Triple H came out in Fort Worth? The the crowd absolutely exploded. Like one of the biggest pops I've ever heard. And then he, they did. They, then they turn him heel, and it's just like that. And the Austin turn back heel later on that year. It's like I know Triple H got injured, but you see, you don't really know what would have happened. But Triple H had to be a babyface at that point, and it just was not the right thing to turn him here when, when all you really had was undertaking Kane and Benoit and Jericho were the next lot and they weren't ready either so it's like not ready is probably the wrong way they certainly weren't built to be ready whether they were no. ready or not it's probably a different you know different question yeah no totally totally um so yeah it was just interesting and this was also also the time when WWF were desperate to find the next generation of main event guys yeah because in truth they had two main eventers with Michaels getting injured they had Austin Undertaker and that was really it Foley wasn't really even a main event guy at this point and certainly Kane was it was still kind of generally thought that Kane would disappear in the next couple of months because mm. he'd had his big feud with the Undertaker and that was done and that's what happened with all Undertaker's opponents. They would kind of have that that he'd bring in the next monster hill, he'd beat them, and then he'd bugger off. And that was what was expected to happen with Kane until obviously they managed to keep it going for for many many decades afterwards. To mm. the point where he's now the mayor of Knoxville, is it in in Tennessee? I think so. Yeah. 
Right. Well, that uh, that brings us all. That's all the, t- the talking points for today. We will take a little break now. And then when we come back, we'll go through all of the rest of the show in uh, chronological order. I know what you're thinking. I'm not a real athlete. I'm just a wrestler. I'm six foot ten, three hundred and twenty-eight pounds. I, golden gloves three years ago. I was a national champion at the University of Miami. My jersey was retired at Florida State. I was the ultimate fighting champion. When you step through those ropes, bad things do happen. And over two hundred steps. I've suffered a dozen concussions. I've separated shoulders. I've blown out knees. I've still got up. This is who I am. This is what I do. I'm not really an athlete. This isn't real. Try lacing my boots. Right, welcome back. Now we've got the rest of In House 22, got it right this time, over the edge to cover. And I, I feel like I, I need to kind of almost have a disclaimer, right? So I realized when I was talking about Adam Cole and when I was talking about Owen Hart and stuff that I have kind of got to a point again with modern wrestling, wrestling from today, where I feel like I'm seeing the errors that I thought had slightly disappeared in the past. And I'm kind of getting to that point where I feel like, oh, you're just not doing it right. Why aren't you doing it right? And I think this is mainly because for me, and I've been saying this since at least December of of last year, AEW has just been not good. It's just been not a good product overall. Wrestling-wise, been wonderful. But the product itself, the story-based telling of those matches just has not been at all good for me, in my personal opinion. And so I've been on this kind of, since then, this kind of mission to figure out what it is exactly that isn't right about it. And there are multiple things, and I think people, some people have brought up certain things, but I think there's things that aren't being talked about enough. And I, I got into a bit of being a bee in my bonnet to try and bring up some of those things. So I, and I think we might get one or two of those things still to come this year. I look show. forward to it. So I apologise for that. So, the show begins with a absolute doozy of a match we've got um the 2000 version of lod uh, with draws and sunny in their corner against the disciples of apocalypse eight bull and skull ron and don harris themselves with their other brother i think it's brian harris chains or brian lee as he was known in ecw in a 10 minute tag team match the proverbial two pairs of bollocks smashing against each other match this one no doubt about it the match ends when animal pins eight ball after a power slam following an attempt by doa to switch skull and eight ball and then draws clubbing eight ball from behind let's start with you matt what was your what was your thoughts on this one do, do you know what this is one of those where i'm actually lost for words uh, <laughs> um there's not really a lot you can say about it. It was it was fine. I mean, if anything, I probably think the more interesting thing was hearing Jerry Lawler's commentary talking about Sunny. That that's just pretty much what sort of caught my attention throughout the match, really. And I can't think of anything particularly bad that he said, but match-wise, no, that there wasn't anything to it. I mean, like you said, you know, the the proverbial bollocks smashing against each other. That that's pretty much the best way you could describe it. It was it was fine. That that's pretty much all I can say. I tell you, the thing that I most know about this match is that this is so unlike anything you'd ever see on a mainstream national television product today. WWE, AEW, even Impact. It's just so different from mm. anything you'd ever see these days. I thought Jim Ross was in a weird old mood. He was talking about experts say the LOD have lost the step and they may have. But they're like, what is that? Like, you, you're telling us that these guys are old and they're not as good as they used to be. What, like, what is wrong with you? I actually thought this was passable, actually. I didn't think this was... 
I, I, there's a few matches on this when you see them I think this is going to be absolutely awful and I was like this was okay this was passable for what it was or better than I expected so yeah yeah that that's yeah that's my start of the viewing of this show basically uh, impassable is probably right I mean the thing for me is I I anticipated both of you thinking this was absolutely gutter. But the truth is, is as I said, for me, I I think I think at the time I would have been like, this is fucking terrible. Oh, fuck, this is shit. But now I was like, you know what? Because you don't ever see anything yeah. like this. I was just like, this is quite refreshing. Like, it isn't very good at all. But I can't say I'm bored of it because it's so different. You can't, you will never see this on television right now. So I, I didn't hate it. But but yeah, it's it's a, it's a not a great, great match at all. But a strange way to start the show as well. LMD 2000 against the Disciples of Apocalypse. I could see this being the second match on a show, not the first one. It didn't, it just didn't feel like an opener to me. It was get sunny out there, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. Get pop for sunny, True. and that was it. Yeah. There's also this weird hot, hot women in front of the crowd. Mm. That's what they want. Yeah. There's also this weird association with draws as well, which uh, never was really explained to me. I think he's is he from Chicago? Is, is that the idea that he's? Uh, I don't know. That's yeah. the reason why he's involved with them. But whatever the case, no, he's not from Chicago. So I don't know where why they decided to associate him with them. But obviously, he would go on to do the stuff with Hawk and the fact that he was kind of helping like trying to help him be an alcoholic so that he would replace hawk in the legion of doom later in the year when legion of doom stock had very seriously fallen very quickly was he ever puke after because like i know they mentioned it a couple of times like did they full-on go with him like as puke no they never really do even though vince mcmahon in that beyond the mat is like he's gonna he's gonna be um but he yeah they don't really use him that they call him draws and he's a member of the legion of doom for like six months I don't know how much of a wrestler he'd been either before he joined WWE, if at all. And obviously then not long after they were later the following year he obviously had the accident with D'Lo and, um, and was paralysed but yeah he, he was never a puke from my memory never really they, they talked about it occasionally but they yeah. never kind of talked to him they never sort of said oh here's puke coming out no I think a little bit around this run when they were t- when, before he kind of turned a bit but yeah I, 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 not not it was draws towards the back end wasn't it definitely so that's the first match done then we get The Rock coming to the ring now this is it's all a bit random this is mm. let's, let's be honest let's be honest with ourselves the rock comes to the ring he cuts a promo he's he does his this is when he used to do i, I actually think he should have carried on doing this because i really liked it he used to do the everybody wants to know what the rock thinks about something and then he would bring up a topic so he used to do this regularly and i used to quite like this but he talks about everyone wants to know about what the rock thinks about milwaukee he then does the bit where he basically talks about how milwaukee's known for its beer drinking but he would also drink beer if he had to look at the women that are in milwaukee it was you know typical kind of heel stuff then farouk runs out and attacks the rock the rock then swings a chair at farouk misses and hits himself in the head with the tamest chair shot there's ever been farouk then Pile drives the rock on onto a chair, but ostensibly actually misses the chair. And uh, so he's just doing a normal pile driver. And the nation then run out, but Farouk decks them too. He then walks away. The nation show concern for the rock and they bring out a stretcher and the rock has to be kind of carried away with a with a neck brace on with the nation all playing up the idea that the rock's neck is seriously injured. Stephen, what did you make of this? I mean, I, I thought the rock was, was good here. Um, but again, JR, he clearly Farouk knocked the chair away he clearly missed the chair missed the chair of the pile driver and JR said it once yeah Jerry Lawler like no that didn't it didn't he didn't get it and then, JR, and then Ross said it again 
So I, I just, I, I, I like Jim Ross. I still think he's he's good and has some value now, even though he drops the old clanger. But he was really bad on some of this stuff on the show. And this was really embarrassing. Like he's the one that's supposed to say, oh, I don't think Fruit got all of that. But mm. clearly they were doing a big injury angle here because the nation will come out. But the, the whole thing with this throughout the show was just booked in a very odd way for me. Um, it didn't really make a lot of sense. Well, why is The Rock coming out? Well, yeah, well? I don't know. Um, it sort of would make some sense if they were kind of doing a thing where The Rock was trying to weasel his way out of the match and so mm. he comes out to try and get the fruit to fruit to beat him up and then he can claim an injury but to be able to manufacture it so that Farouk pile drives him on the on a, on a on a chair and why would you allow someone to do that to you you know you wouldn't even if you're trying to get out of a match you wouldn't want that to happen no. so yeah it just did it it just it was really weird it, it was a bit of a weird one i mean um it, it felt like it, it like they were trying to make it far more dramatic than it actually was like this felt like it went on for a long time as well mm. like I can't remember how long it was, but I was like, okay, yeah, you know, get him on a stretcher. And it, it just took ages. It just felt like it took up like a huge chunk of the show. And I was like, let's just get on with it. And I, I think they would expect in the crowd to, you know, to care more. Um, and I just don't think they did. So no. I, I don't really feel that like this kind of uh, hit the home run they were expecting. No, I, I think that, you know, they obviously decided The Rock was going to be the leader of the nation by this point. And again, much like Triple H, The Rock wasn't yet a main event guy, would event would be later on in the year, but hadn't got there that you get got there yet and was very seriously one of the biggest heels on the in the company by this point he was getting a lot of heel heat but farouk had gone from being a heel to a babyface as a consequence of the rock taking over the nation but it's a classic for me and they do this in wrestling a lot these days where they turn someone babyface but don't give you a reason to like them they mm. just expect you to chant for them because the heel doesn't like them and that just doesn't make any sense to me and they've done i've seen this so many times where someone just turns babyface and then you're expected to cheer for them because they now are opposing a heel because a heel turned on them as opposed to them doing something heroic that made you then like them yeah Anyway, that's that. Then there's another speaking segment because Michael Cole interviews Steve Austin backstage. Austin says it doesn't matter how Vince stacks the deck, he'll walk out as the champ. When Cole asks whether anyone has offered to watch his back and ensure Vince McMahon calls it down the middle in the main event because Vince is going to be the referee for his match with Dude Love, Austin says that they haven't and it's probably because they're all scared of what Vince McMahon will do to them. Any thoughts on Austin? I thought Michael Cole gave Steve Austin like such a lovely, like really, really put him over like such a lovely introduction I thought Carl was pretty good and Austin came back by calling him a silly bastard which really <laughs> made me laugh it's like poor Michael Cole but all the interviews were uh, were treated badly then uh, funny but me I thought this was good from Austin nothing out of this world but just you know solid good you know high level decent stuff from Austin that he did pretty much every every promo around this time consistently good basically yeah. is what Austin was yeah yeah so then we get Tennessee Lee come to the ring I think he is Ron Fuller or Robert Fuller one of the two not mm. sure which one one of the Fuller brothers and he introduces Jeff Jarrett Jarrett says ain't I great and that's pretty much the introduction for Jeff Jarrett ahead of the match that he has with Steve Blackman which is another match that goes just over 10 minutes and it ends when uh, Tennessee Lee hits Blackman with one of his own kendo sticks as he's perched on the top rope and Jarrett gets the pin. Uh, Stephen, what did you make of this match? Blackman had two large yellow sticks that made it look like he was going to basically direct a plane to take off or land rather than <laughs> being a martial arts expert. There was a great German suplex spot for near fall on Jarrett and um, Blackman looked like he nearly killed him on the outside of a superkick. And for a while, I was like, is there this undercover like classic between Steve Blackman and Jeff Jarrett on pay-per-view? And I was like... This is unbelievable. This there was like a Blackman did like this great um, near fall with like a I don't even know what the move's called like a leg roll backslide type thing. I'm like no 
one's done that in WF up to this point. And then it just sort of fell apart for a few minutes and they got it back. But I thought this was, pre- I quite like this. I was like, again, my expectations were so low. That <laughs> I thought this was pretty good, I, especially the first four, the first, genuinely, the first four or five minutes of this, I mean, yeah, I thought were tremendous, like really, really, really good. And then it just, yeah, it was Steve Blackman and Jarrett for a couple of minutes. But yeah, I liked it. <laughs> Matt? Do you know what? I agree. Um, wow. I, re- I really liked this and I wasn't expecting to either. Now, I haven't seen a lot of Steve Blackman in the past. I mean, I say I haven't seen a lot of Steve Blackman. Everything of Steve Blackman I've seen is to do with the hardcore title and to do with, you know, with Kendo 6 skits and stuff like that. So I've never actually seen him just have a match. And he was good. I was actually pleasantly surprised. I don't really know what I was expecting from it, but this turned into quite a good little match. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it was interesting to see him do something that has not to do with the hardcore title, because everything I've seen of him is, is all that. Pretty much the main thing I can always remember of Steve Blackman is the sort of thing with Shane McMahon, where he knocked him off that massive scaffolding years later. But this was actually really good. And to be honest, it was my second favourite match of the night. Yeah, great. Wow, I didn't I didn't see the match quite that way. I didn't think it was bad, but I I, I would put it in the same category as you put the opener, which was passable. To be honest, it was it was okay, it was fine. The the main thing that I found was that I was completely distracted by was something that Jr. said on commentary here. So he says, and this is probably didn't ring a bell for anyone else, probably didn't ring any alarm bells for anyone else. I'm probably the only person who noticed this in the entire world. But he says he first heard how tough Blackman was from the late Brian Pillman. Now I've got a real issue with this because it doesn't match with WWE's continuity at all <laughs> because brian pillman died in october of 1997 just after that on raw steve blackman turns up to save vader from attack at an attack at the hands of team canada he's a fan and he jumps the fence and and it turns out that he's a martial arts expert and so then gets given a contract so there's no way brian pillman would have known who steve blackman was before he died and so there's no way that jim ross had that conversation obviously he did in real life but it shouldn't have been it shouldn't have made air it's, it's mm. not have said it it's not within the continuity of how they introduced steve blackman and it's not like this was four years ago this was only six months previous that he introduced steve blackman so for me it's a small point but it, a time when WWE really were good on stories. This was this was poor. That was that was it. But that was the main thing. It completely <laughs> distracted me from anything else that was going on. So maybe that's why I didn't see this uh, undercover classic come through uh, like yourselves. Lawley did make a quite funny joke. I thought, which was uh, that he'd been told, I think, by Sable uh, that if your phone don't ring, it'll be me. I thought that was a really yeah, good, that, was good. that was a really good joke. But yeah, it uh, d- didn't really pass with any real note from me other than those commentary <laughs> commentary notes if i'm perfectly honest uh another case as well of a wrestler and jeff jarrett for me who again here like it's i think this is why i have a real problem with people thinking of jeff jarrett as an important act of any kind because i don't think he is and i think this is kind of where his level was sort of middling mm. mid-level he's all right but never really that great and he got incredibly lucky so when you were talking earlier on Stephen, about triple h and sort of his journey to the top there's apparently a conversation in mid 99 that went that was happening backstage between Vince and Jim Ross and um, and uh, Vince Russo about who Austin's opponent should be for SummerSlam. And there were three contenders and they were supposed to be Triple H, Jeff Jarrett and Billy Gunn. Those were the mm. three c- contenders. And Austin basically said he wouldn't. Yeah. And Austin said basically he wouldn't do. Billy Gunn or Jeff Jarrett, so it pretty much had to be Triple H. Vince Russo was kind of backing up Jeff Jarrett. Jim Ross was kind of, you know, just just making sure that Austin got what he wanted, apparently. And Vince was really high on Billy Gunn. And uh, it just made me think, like, for me, Austin's assessment of Jeff Jarrett in that moment, if that genuinely did happen, was absolutely right. He was not 
a main event talent. And Jeff Jarrett really only became main event talent when he went to WCW and joined his, his best mate Vince Russo, gave him a main event slot. And then, of course, made himself a main eventer in TNA for for years and years. But for me, this this is Jeff Jarrett's level. Really it's probably controversial. Austin didn't like Jarrett as well. I don't even remember this. But one, one of Jarrett's first promos, and they were doing a lot of shoot stuff. In 97, he, sla- he, he did like a slagged off the Austin 316 thing for religious reasons and Austin right. was like what are you doing like what are you doing like this shouldn't have ever been on air like you, you shouldn't have said that and I think there was always a bit of an issue with them um and yeah I'm sure that probably contributed to that decision but he was right for wrestling reasons as well definitely I, I heard I heard that as well the same thing that they seemed to have been some form of issue and uh yeah the, apparently there was that conversation that happened and and, and it's funny that you bring up Jeff Jarrett because literally I'm just scrolling through Twitter earlier and I just saw that he's the most uh, he's the most recently announced guest on Steve Austin's Broken Skull Sessions Ugh. on WWE Network coming up so I'm actually strangely intrigued by that I've got to be perfectly honest just because I feel like I don't know it just doesn't seem like someone Austin would talk to ordinarily. oh i suppose actually given what you've just said isn't like it very much perhaps it, yeah i don't know that's just, interest it just I, feels I, quite interesting that one i don't mind the stone cold shows but i do i do kind of feel that they're a bit watered down maybe yeah, they're, yeah. they're wwe in-house yeah we're not exactly. gonna we're not gonna be controversial kind of no. things the only that i i hadn't seen the sasha banks one but i saw a clip of one of the ones that she did and the things that she said about how she used to be really grateful for just being there, but now she's bigger than that. And I just thought oh, she should have been the biggest star in that company. Yes. From the minute she hit the main roster, she should have been number one, top star, absolutely phenomenal uh, wrestler, character, presence a lot. She had Everything. the total package. She was absolutely, and they just never really used her that way. And it's just a fucking shame. They always push Charlotte over her. And I think that was the wrong decision. It's not yeah. even that though. They still push the men over her. And she's, she should have been the biggest star in the company. Yeah, not just the women. She should have been the biggest star in the company. So that's Jeff Jarrett spoken about. So that's good. We got him out of the way. Then we get the whole Mark Marrow and Sable bit, which we've, uh, I think we've covered relatively well the the next thing that happens is doc Hendricks is backstage with the nation uh he's trying to get a word with the rock about um the fact that sergeant slaughter has said that if the rock doesn't defend the intercontinental title tonight against farouk he will be stripped of the title the nation are acting as if the rock has a serious neck injury and uh Doc Hendricks fails in his attempts to get any word from The Rock. Then we get bonus match time. And everyone knows that the bonus match is where the big stuff happens. It's Kai and Tai, Dick Togo, Men's Tail and Shofanaki against Justin Bradshaw and Taka Michinoko in a two on three handicap match, which again goes for about 10 minutes. This one ends when Togo hits a senton bomb on Taka to get the win. Matt, what did you make of this? This was another good one. I, I thought I, I, I quite enjoyed this. A couple of sort of early observations. One, Bradshaw was absolutely enormous. I don't ever remember him being that big. Not only that, but um, when they announced the Kai and Tai, now th- this was interesting for me because I always thought the Kai and Tai was Taka and Funaki. So for me, th- th- that was a learning curve. I was like, whoa, what? I, I didn't know that that was a thing, but apparently it was. So, but as a match, yeah, it was it was pretty good. Um, it, there were some good spots in there. So, um, they, they all seemed to work like, quite well together. Bradshaw, I felt, was actually a plus to the match. Like, it's one of the better ones that I've seen involving him, which really did surprise me. I, why it was a bonus match? I mean, you guys might know something more about that than I do. With when they announced it as a bonus match, I was like. Okay, that great. Thanks. Is did they used to do this like back in the day? Was this like a, a pre-show thing of today? 
no, they, advertised, they, basically. Yeah, 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 and they do still do it, in fairness, on WWE pay-per-views. They just don't call it a bonus match. They mm. just, oh, here's an unannounced match or whatever. Yeah, it usually means that it doesn't mean anything, <laughs> usually. Mm. And there's kind of an ongoing feud. So they had the light heavyweight title since the December December of the previous year. Uh, Takamichi Noko had beaten Brian Christopher in the final of the tournament. But they'd not really done anything with it. So they'd given mm. Taka, like, the occasional Mexican wrestler to face in a, in a in a match, which didn't mean anything. But they never really gave him any stories. And this was the first attempt to give him a story, really, which was these this gang from Japan who'd come back, used to be his mates in, in Japan. And then and now we're attacking him for being kind of westernized by the fact that he'd come over to the WWF. And so that was, it was an attempt to give Taka something to do. But it did really just result in him teaming with people to go against them. And yeah. they never really, I don't even remember them having a light heavyweight title match against with Taka against any of them. So it didn't really do anything for the title either. Jim Ross even says at one point that it's, he's talking about the division, saying it's not quite there yet, but uh, it's get, it's get, it's getting better or something mm. like that, which is a really strange thing to say on air again. Yeah, really, really odd. What did, what did you think, Stephen? I? Um, I've got no I had no memory of Bradshaw and Takamishinoku team in and I, as I said I was all over this product at this point and I only actually ever teamed up together three times Matt you mentioned it and I've been I don't, I mean I don't want to cast aspersions here but I've written Bradshaw was absolutely gigantic here and there's no way that wasn't Titan Sports Protein Shakes Takamishinoku had the WWF logo on his tights and made him look like a teacher's pet try hard it's like come on JR again he lost his mind on Lawler during this for mentioning something about a woman and he suggested he counselling and he, then he went on about Bradshaw's, Bradshaw's attitude in the World Football League being bad. It's like, he's, he's a face here, Jim. And he's just like, <laughs> shut up, who cares, move on. Bradshaw hit a Tiger suplex in what I think was probably the best moment of his entire career. And I thought, this was this was fine. Like, this was good. I didn't care all that much. I don't, I'm not a fan of Bradshaw at all. Um, but I thought this was all right in moments. Though I think Bradshaw cocked up the finish because they showed Tacker being pinned from another angle but Bradshaw was in there and didn't make the save, and they'd even showed it in a replay in an odd way as well. So I think he was out of position. But yeah, perfectly fine. Yeah, I quite enjoyed this. I thought this was a pretty decent filler. If you're going to have a bonus match, then make it like this. That'll do me very nicely. He's not my MVP of the night, but MVP of the match undoubtedly goes to Dick Togo, who was fabulous during this match. He was mm. so good. Um, really liked what he did. If you want to see more of Dick Togo and Taka, in fairness, and probably some of the other Kyantai guys in a match that you can get on the WWE Network. Look him up in ECW, some six-man tag matches that they had over there, and they were phenomenal things. They were just magnificent. They just did their match from Michinoku Pro Wrestling, um, basically, mm. they, they'd been doing for years, and it was just phenomenal stuff. So, yeah, I recommend that highly. But, yeah, I don't really remember a lot about Justin Bradshaw and Taka together. They were just, it was just common enemies kind of thing. And I, yeah. was it was it Justin Bradshaw that he ended up turning on to join Kai and Tai? Because Taka does then join, join Kai and Tai later on. I think that's what happened. But anyway, who cares? As you say, it's not that important. <laughs> <laughs> um, so after Sable shown leaving the arena, sadly, obviously Matt didn't give a damn about her, poor lass. Um, there's a WWF advert, a kind of the WWF advert that uh, one of the WWF adverts that I have very, very fond memories of back when. So there was a period, probably end of 96 through to about end of 97 where I kind of stopped watching for a year because I just got to an age where maybe I was starting to fall out of it and then WWF grew up with me if you like yes. got a bit more adult yeah. and I the first thing I watched was the Survivor Series 97 and then watched the Rumble 98 and it was at Rumble 98 that I started noticing how much more adult 
the product had become. And one of the things that really stood out were these adverts. So this was the one with, uh, I'm not a real athlete, I'm just a wrestler. The attitude, kind of the first attitude adverts, if you like, where the, the word attitude was being first used within the company. And uh, it obviously ends on the immortal, try lacing my boots from Steve Austin. There was another one, which I, there was a few of these, and one of them was Ken Shamrock. It was all about Ken Shamrock and how he'd um, been like homeless as a child and all this kind of stuff. And they were just really cool. I really liked them. What did you think of these, Matt? Because I'm really interested in what you thought of this advert before I, I, because I've got you go, you go, because I've got a probably vaguely interesting perspective on this. They were okay. I mean, whenever it comes to wrestlers talking about, you know, how this this is not fake, you can't say it's fake and all that is, it, it's something that that tends to bug me a bit. I, mm. I gotta be honest, because I find that on the whole, wrestlers can really be just way too sensitive when it comes to that type of thing now don't get me wrong this is probably a lot more i'd say of the older wrestling generation i mean there's there's so many clips you can find online of like you know reporters you know questioning wrestlers and asking like you know what do you do is it fake or is it real and then them them going nuts you know i i can't remember who the wrestler is some somebody will probably know and it was a relatively famous clip as well. So, again, somebody will definitely tell me. But somebody slapped the reporter as well. It's David Schultz, isn't it? David yeah. Schultz, yeah. yeah. That, thank you. Thank you very much. I was going to say, I, I knew somebody would remember it. Like, that is just, oh, just that really bugs me. And it's, I just find it, it's just so sensitive when it comes to that thing. And it's just, there's no need to be. And, you know, it's, it's always like they have to constantly prove they're tough. And, you know, with, with the, you know, the, the, the phrase, what was the phrase about, you know, it's it a ballet, you know, how many frigging years did they toss that phrase around? You know, it's like, ah, I, I just wish they weren't so sensitive over it. But yeah, like that, that advert again was trying to hit home the message that, you know, they're, they're big, tough guys. Well, I loved this advert so much when I was six, 15, 16 when they was around. And I remember repeating some of this stuff to my <laughs> non-believing father about like, <laughs> wow. Steve Austin was dropped on his head and all this sort of stuff. However, and I sat there thinking, you know, I really like this, really like this. And I was like, it was almost like a light bulb. It With 40-year-old eyes, I'm like, I actually find them saying people say it's fake or whatever during the body of the show quite grating in 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 some lot a lot of hindsight what are we 24 years on from this i found that quite grating but i didn't think that at all at the time so my my views kind of changed i guess i guess what it fit in for the time 100 percent. but yeah i don't know i found it a bit a bit a bit of a strange one you know all those years on it's an interesting perspective i I hadn't thought about like that and I, i i do completely um have some sympathy for that i think they get away with it just about because they don't say it they're not explicit in that yeah they're saying things like they say oh yeah i'm not a real athlete but they don't say you know this is all fake they're just they're kind of saying actually these are my credentials and then farouk says about how many times he won whatever he did at american football and all of them telling you telling them their credentials as athletes and then i like that they just were a little just a bit subtle about it so they're not saying this is not fake you know we are we're real tough guys they, they are saying that but they're not saying it explicitly they're saying yeah. it in a really implicit way and i quite like that and it, it got me thinking about the wwf of this period sort of certainly second half of 97 first half of 98 because it's interesting i think some of this gets lost in the retelling of history with the wwf because obviously when they retell the monday night war they talk about how wcw was amazing for 18 months from 96 from mid 96 through to the end of 97 then austin came along and everything changed 
changed. And that's pretty much what they say. That's their story. That's the that is the narrative. And that's a summary version of that. But what that misses is all the ways in which WWF changed their attitude to how they made their show during that period. And this is one of those exact this is an example of it, the WWF advert, the, the, the attitude advert, because they'd gone from focusing on how WCW was rubbish to focusing on why they were good yeah. and it would just every suddenly everything was geared to how we can make our own show better and not only that but they were really brave they tried so many things to see if they could get over so the light heavyweight division is an example of that just one but there were loads they had the minis for a while they were doing that they were trying to see if people were interested in that they had all the gang war stuff that they had towards the end of 97 so they had the doa los Equas, nation of domination heart foundation truth commission just tons of dx like tons of gangs they also had the i know people it's kind of lamented but the brawl for all was another example of them trying something else just to differentiate themselves from wcw see if they could come up with something new that would people that would catch on that people would be interested in the nwa revival that they tried to do in early 98 again a really another thing that didn't really work but just they just tried different things and those um shoot promos that you were talking about so jeff jarrett's promos when he came reintroduced into wwf to gold dust and, and terry runnels did a whole thing with like mixing real life with their story on, on on screen not in a way that kind of exposed that what they did in front of the cameras was was fake but in a way that kind of mixed well with the reality mm. of the on-screen product they did the same with mick foley and his three characters and how that was kind of they baked in the idea that foley himself was crazy um and that's why when he came out with these three different characters and they were all slightly different it was because he had this split character disorder and it was it was just they just did loads of things and i said not all of them worked not all of them were great and some of them were, were well left behind but they were brave and they tried things and they they really mixed it up and they really concentrated on how they could improve their own product rather than try and just run down the opposition and it it, it just really brought up all those memories of all those things when i saw mm. this advert before the next match, uh, The Rock is introduced a couple of times but doesn't appear. Then Commissioner Slaughter arrives and comes into the ring. He says rather <laughs> inexpertly that The Rock signed a contract to defend the IC title. And so if he doesn't come out and defend the IC title, he'll award the belt to Farouk. And he then says he's going to count to 10. If The Rock's not there, then he will forfeit the match. At the count of two, The Rock emerges with a neck brace on from the backstage. And we have a match between The Rock and Farouk for the WWF Intercontinental Championship. Now, strangely, for a few that had been building for the best part of six months, this ends up being just five minutes and ends when The Rock gets the pin with his feet on the ropes after a very weird bit of nonsense that I have no idea what the hell was going on. So Farouk does a spine muster and then one of them appears to be hurt or something's not happened as it's supposed to have happened. He goes down for the three count. The referee, Tim White, counts to three, even though The Rock's leg is on the rope. And you can see that in the replays afterwards but there's not like this explicit it's not as if that's part of the whole end that's supposed to happen it's obviously clearly a mistake yeah. and then as i said the rock kind of sweeps through legs and pins him with his own legs on the rope really odd Stephen. i thought this was i thought the whole um dynamic of the the injured rock as a heel he's not trying to worm his way out of a match with fruit Farouk just, you know, the, the crowd weren't interested in him at all. Ross was what is his brilliant best during this, talking about how Farouk was 
at least 10 years older than The Rock to make him seem old. The finish was a complete mess. And the only good thing in this was the people's elbow before it was the people at people's elbow, which still got a good reaction from the crowd. It did, yeah. But that was that. That was it. I mean, a couple of flashes of The Rock aside, I thought this was the weakest thing on the card up to this point, which is bizarre considering The Rock was it. I put Farouk versus the half-dead Rock as well as, uh, as my <laughs> title for this one. Yeah, do you know, I, I kind of think that The Rock messed this up, to be honest. Um, you know, well, the, the finish anyway. I mean, I'm not quite sure what happened exactly, but I think, like, The Rock sort of turned or something when he was meant to be pinned. It looked like Farouk was talking to him while they were on the match, you know, trying to... I, I have a funny feeling he was probably just trying to remind him what the finish was meant to be. Because, I mean, Rock was still relatively new at this point, so I, I kind of think that he messed that up. And, yeah, it just um, it, it wasn't great. They tried, yeah, not not really either guy's sort of bright shiny moment, really. No, it was really, really bad, really, 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 really poor. And mm. the whole thing was poor. Like the rock coming out earlier in the night, as I said, was weird. Then this happening, and it, it's not clear that the rock wasn't injured either. That's the that's the weird thing as well. It wasn't made. It wasn't like they explicitly exposed the ruse that the rock was actually not injured. It just, it kind of just was like, oh, well, maybe he is, especially with the ending, mm. uh, the, the sort of botch ending almost made you feel like he was injured for real. Like it was just, it was just really odd. And then for it to last five minutes after six months of build felt really odd as well. And then after the match, Fruit hits a couple of power drivers and the, and the, the nation runs down, attacks Fruit, and then DX run out and make the save. It was almost like they're trying to draw a line under this feud as quickly as they possibly could. Like they wanted to move the rock onto something better. And Farouk was going to basically, for the rest of the next sort of year until he teamed up with Bradshaw, just fulfill this kind of, yeah, this nothing role on matches on Shotgun that was still going at the time. And I think he, I think there was a period where he, Terry Funk, uh, two cold Scorpio and a, maybe maybe Bradshaw were just basically having tag team matches every single week on Shotgun, but with different kind of combinations of them. It was a it wasn't a good time for Farouk or Bradshaw, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so after that, we get a mask versus mask match between Kane and Vader. Again, a very strange thing this is, I think. So we've got a seven minute contest here, which ends when uh, after Vader misses a moonsault, Kane hits a tombstone for the pin. Um, after the match, Kane removes Vader's mask, as if you can't pretty much see all of Vader's face anyway with his mask. Um, and he gives it to Paul Bearer, who uh, prances around in it, which was vaguely funny for a moment. And after the match, Michael Cole interviewed Vader at ringside and Vin- Vader says that he has no excuses. He says maybe Vader time is over and that he's just a big fat piece of shit. This this wasn't much of anything, really. It, it was your, your sort of typical WWE big men, you know tight match you know i'm gonna try and knock you down i can't you're too big blah 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 and it, it was yeah it, it was quite the, the crowd seemed quite quiet for it i mean the last minute or two i, I suppose sort of picked back up and, and it was particularly impressive to see kane get invaded up for a tombstone um so that there was that as a highlight but yeah as as the the concept of the match you know the mask versus mask i mean i gotta be honest i felt that was a little bit naff because I thought that they, surely when you compare the two masks, I mean, yeah, like you said, you, you could pretty much see Vader's face anyway. So for me, that kind of telegraphed the outcome. I was like, well, there's no way the Kane's losing his mask. And yeah, he didn't. And then, yeah, you know, Vader cut his promo afterwards saying he's a big fat piece of shit and pushed Michael Cole out of the way and went about his business. And we, we all continue with our lives. <laughs> What I tend to do when I'm when I do these shows is I'll get the observer and I want to come back to that because I was also on in your house one 
because I really want to, sometimes I'm listening and I really want to dive into the chat. So I was going to say this, and maybe if you don't mind, we'll just go back there very briefly. Um, so I read the Observer after I've watched the match to see if there's any interesting tidbits or funny stuff, especially good on some of the, you know, some of the 90s shows. It's kind of a bit of a different Dave. He called this in the Observer a mascara contra mascara match. That's mask versus mask in Spanish. Now, why did he feel the need to say that? <laughs> I know mask mask matches are a big deal in Mexico, lots of history, but it's like it was even more of a try hard mood than Takamichinoko having the WF logo on his tights. And I'm like, that is so, so I was like, I've grown, it's so sad. And I mean the 1990s definition of sad. Now, I want to talk about Dave Meltzer, if you gentlemen wouldn't mind. You go for it. I know that, I know Matt, you're a fan, and Ben, I know you're not. It's, it's been said. Yeah. So no. I was a huge fan of Dave Meltzer. So I did a, one of my things in lockdown was watching all of the five star matches and he got him quite involved in some of the tweets and all sorts of things. And yeah, that was that was great. Now, I used to regularly listen to like every single Brian Alvarez and Dave Meltzer podcast I would listen to religiously. Like as soon as they came out, that was my that was my routine every week. And then all the other podcasts I listened to would kind of fall away behind that. But I got to a point with them. There's two, two, two things really, really hurt m- my feelings towards Dave particularly. First name basis, obviously. Um, <laughs> the star rating thing. The system is smashed. So I feel like I put all of that time into like, um, you know, creating something on Twitter. I think it was quite popular at the time. Like every day there'd be four or five matches. I write about them. It got quite a lot of bars. It was really good. It helped build up my Twitter following. It was, I really enjoyed it. It was great. And then all of a sudden you get G1 and clap crowds and you've got Osprey's good. I really like Will Osprey, but Osprey's a good example. Osprey versus anybody clap crowd of 1500 i never no one will ever think about that match for the rest of time and it's five and a half stars and you're like i'm sorry dave but that isn't it can't be it just isn't it can't be it just isn't and the star system is completely busted um, and it's actually quite embarrassing like some of the ratings for aew pay-per-views particularly are like in what world are you living in when to give this this stuff this rating and i had to stop after the pay-per-view in november last year i was like this is so far i feel like not that i just want to listen to someone saying exactly what i think like that you know we've all got different views on things it's not about that it's when you're listening to someone that you feel like the credibility is gone and they're in a completely different space to you on something and there didn't seem to be any criticism when there's criticism on on wwe and all that sort of stuff I had to stop listening. I still keep my Observer subscription because I think the archive is really good for this podcast when I'm on and my own. It's just interesting sometimes to have a look back at some of the old stuff. And and, and the newsletter for the news and stuff, I feel like it's easier to take than it is the podcast. But I, I feel like he's it, a busted flush now. And I think the credibility credibility is gone. I haven't listened. I think I've listened to one podcast today since November, which was when Cody left AEW. But I, it's just... And I feel sad about it because it was... Like it, it sounds ridiculous, but probably for 10 years, I listened to Brian Alvarez and Dave Meltzer probably four or five hours a week. And that's just good done now. So, yeah, that's just my thoughts. But I thought it was interesting your discussion on it on the In Your House po- uh, podcast, basically. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well. I mean, I'm not going to add add any more to what you've said. I, I think I said previously that he had his day and it's, that is gone now. It's no, it's no longer here. But the other thing for me is I've never had any kind of a relationship with any of Dave Meltzer's work. So that's the other thing that's different for me. I've never read The Observer, ever. Um, the only way I know Meltzer is through the fact that he's Dave Meltzer. I did get into PW Torch for a time. Yeah, and I, I like, like Wade a lot. And I really yeah. like Wade Keller. I've never taken to to Dave Meltzer at all. You know, I think partially 
there was there's a period of pro wrestling which probably was maybe 2005 to about 2013 maybe where what how do i call it the modern style i call it the modern style of pro wrestling kind of came about and was formed with ring of honor and then sort of fused with new japan or the stuff that was going on in japan anyway in general um and then has kind of now bled into what AEW is and is kind of the audience that it attracts and i was never part of that that was never something that held an interest to me was that Mm. that emergence of that style if you like and i've never been particularly a fan of ring of honor barely ever watched it you know for example for me and so for for me dave Meltzer is kind of a centerpiece of that in some ways because he he popularized the i guess the championing of that style so for me it just doesn't it's there's no again i guess no emotional value to it for me because i just didn't engage with it so and it's why i I kind of find myself quite up against a lot of popular modern opinion about good and bad pro wrestling because i feel like his and i may be wrong in this because i said i'd never really read it but i feel like anyway that his viewpoint is very much based around match quality alone and that for me is not as important as he thinks and i will get to that again later on when we mm. uh we talk about the main event I, I think the only thing that that i sort of i'd say that i get frustrated with is like this sort of just the, this sort of thing and the opinion on the star rating system it, it's just people seem to have taken that to a whole new level over the last couple of years and to be honest i i, I still regularly listen to his shows right Hands mm. up, I'll be honest about it. Still, it's all good, it's all good. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> Still a regular listener. So I kind of feel that he's almost saying it with a smile and a wink. You know, when he you know, when he goes, this match is six and a half stars, you know. I kind of feel like he's taking the piss out of it a little bit. Maybe. And the people who are going nuts over it are the ones who aren't listening to his shows. So the ones who haven't listened to his podcast, just, you know, they'll see it, you know, just a brief thing on Twitter or they'll see a link and go, oh, my God, Dave gave this match six and a half stars. What a dick. And then all of a sudden somebody else will come in. Yeah, he is. And and that's it. it, it of all the sort of people who tend to have a go at him a lot and in, in terms of um somebody in wrestling spaces who tends to have a go at him a lot that I've noticed is Eric Bischoff, mm. which I've always found particularly fascinating because, and I, I'll stop in a minute, but very sort of quickly. One of the things that, that I tend to remember about Eric Bischoff is when, it might have been at the first sort of AEW show where Eric Bischoff showed up to do a, one of the StarCast events. And I think the, the main reason he was invited was to do a sort of debate on the uh, the death of WCW book. Um, which was um, not actually written by Dave. And Eric didn't seem to know that. Yeah. You know, he showed up specifically and, you know, he was all pumped up and, you know, ready to debate him about all the all the lies that he'd written in this book. And he didn't even know that he hadn't, he hadn't even written the damn thing. It's just that that just and, and people sort of gravitate towards Bischoff when they when he says shit about Dave and that. And so th- that does bug me. It's just like I said, it's mostly the star rating system thing that the people have just taken way, way to heart for whatever reason that bugs me. I, I'm, I'm still a fan of him personally. This is an, a weird thing to say, but if someone big, big name in the wrestling industry passed away, I would that the, the what the person I'd be interested in hearing talk about it is him. So there is still that historical thing with him that I think he does very well and his knowledge is very strong. I think on the star rating, I think for a lot of us, it's like that used to be a bit of a holy grail in terms of the five star thing. Um, in terms of like American wrestling, or uh, you know, I mean, I, I, perhaps this is a bit sad of me, but whatever. 
there was a match. I, I remember the Johnny Gargano Adam Cole one is a really good example of this. I was like, have I just seen my first five star match live? Because I've never seen one up to that point. I'm like, is he going to get it? Is he going to? I think got five and a half. It's like it deserved it deserved it. Whatever. Like whatever you want to do more than five, less than five, whatever. But I think that because of all the stuff that's come after that and the stuff that you think is not memorable, that I feel like that hurts people a bit because you you've held you've held something in such a high esteem that when that's not there anymore. And it's it's just a weird it's a weird feeling I don't know I I you know I I'm quite happy with listening to you guys and quickly Kevin and the vet and so I don't really listen to any modern wrestling stuff and I think as you said Ben earlier on that's reflective of the fact that there's not much modern wrestling I actually like now I don't like AEW that much I skip a lot of it every week I I like Stardom pay per views and that's about it I don't watch much New Japan and I like Rev Pro and that's that's kind of it and it's a bit sad considering how much of wrestling is actually out there two contradictory points of view really on what matt was saying with regards to the star system is a for me that's never been important is one person's mm. is one person's opinion i i don't and i don't even really even though we talk about match quality all the time in there and whether they're good matches or not i don't really think as i've said many times i don't think it's that important i think in some ways the star system and maybe this is not dave Meltzer, but maybe a product of Meltzer, the star system itself is the reason why some people are so concentrated on technical quality of a match um i don't know but that's how i feel about it but the, the contradictory point of view to that is what you said Stephen, which is that here we are in an age where really dave Meltzer's greatest contribution to wrestling is the is the star system and if he devalues that and there's lots of people who really do care about what he thinks and kind of see those designations as a really important kind of thing then what's he got left you know like doesn't yeah. really feel like he's got anything because there's, there's endless people doing reporting journalism on wrestling many doing much better than dave Meltzer. Yeah. like there are numbers of people that are doing far better reporting on pro wrestling than dave Meltzer these days and that's why i said he had his day he was the guy when it came to reporting on pro wrestling he's not anymore there are yeah. better people out there just a final thing on that. He talks about his his kind of gift to the world. So I'm sat here in an all Japan women's T-shirt and I wouldn't have seen any of that stuff if it wasn't for Dave Meltzer. And I think I'm probably more on the side of, um, I think with that stuff, you can get, your, I mean, obviously you're not going to get the promos and stuff that you would get in a, in a traditional American wrestling, but on some of the Manami Toyota stuff, you can, you can, you can get, you can sense the drive, like hair versus hair or like big title match. You can sense it. And there is a story that comes out of it, but it's, it's also, sort of ultra high level technical stuff at the same time i think that's the best put AEW on you like it could be any two and i'll give you a four and a half star tv match but who cares unless you're invested in the outcome and that's why i think you know sorry we're going way off tangent that's why for me the omega and okada matches were so good because the final one was an 18 month storyline to get there and it really was a storyline to get there with the loss the draw the win in the g1 and then finally the victory and it's like it was absolute perfection but you had both sides of the coin one without the other can't get to the highest level for me so let's uh let's continue with the show because we first of all have a few um so we have michael cole in the ring to honor this is very strange as well no what the fuck is going this is there's some odd parts of this show man so michael cole's in the ring he honors two of the greatest wrestlers in the history of the game mad dog vashan and the crusher now we are in milwaukee which is awa territory and these are two strong awa stars of the past 
But throughout this segment, Lorna is complaining. He's complaining about the fact that it's 1998. Why are we doing this for these guys? Why are we giving these ty- guys time on a pay-per-view? They were regional stars. We're an international company. All this kind of st- all this kind of stuff. And it's weird. It's almost as if Vince McMahon has put on this thing to honor these two guys, and then at the same time directed Jerry Lawler to like just completely mm. shit all over it. Then Jerry Lawler gets in the ring. He starts pushing Mad Dog Vashan around. Tries to get his wooden leg. Crusher like pushes him off a few times. Jerry Lawler gets out of the ring. Gets back in the ring gets out of the ring gets back in the ring takes mad dog bashan's leg finally he's got a wooden leg takes it off of him um and then crusher basically takes it back off of jerry lawler and hits him with it and that's kind of like the end to my point on about jerry lawler being a heel he is here once again showing ass again and again throughout this segment which is again for me what makes him a great heel and the, in fairness to the crowd, they really do get behind these guys. They really like the Crusher and, and Mad Dog Vashan. Clearly, some um, legacy AWA fans in the, in the audience. But it just felt very strange. A very weird time for WWE to be looking at the past, which they weren't really doing in 1998. I think this is what you said in terms of them trying stuff. Like this was like an AWA, like Jim Ross in the first match talking about Legion of Doom being AWA tag team champions. I'm like, what? Like, I don't ever remember them doing this. But I think, as you say, it was which is going to be a little bit different. And that's what this was. The only thing I thought about this was the crowd when Lawler was going for the leg this kind of second time. I thought they were a little bit. Oh, I don't really. I'm not sure about it. I thought maybe I had a little bit of an element of like sort of go away heat, maybe. And also the, the guys mm. crushing and he fell over a mad dog actually looked genuinely distressed. And I think that's like this. Maybe he was just selling it. It was just like he did this really good sell job. But when that's a, I don't know, 75 year old, that gives you a different feeling than it does a 35 year old, doesn't it? I think in terms of like watching someone in genuine distress. So yeah, I wasn't, I didn't like, I remember didn't like this at all at the time. This is the sort of thing in 1998. I can imagine watching the living room and my mum coming in. Like what? What are you watching? Like someone's <laughs> someone with a like a fake leg. Just yeah, not not great. This is the kind of thing that in 1998 I can imagine just being like, what the fuck is this? I, I don't know yeah. who these people are and I don't care. And like, I'm probably feeling like Jerry Lawler was saying on commentary, but um, just it's just a really odd thing. They did a St. Louis wrestling legends thing at the In Your House where Shawn Michaels and Undertaker face each other in the Hell in yes. a Cell match. And they've yeah. got like a number of Ray Stevens and various other people as well. I can't remember them all now. Again, similar thing. Basically, they're honoring these sort of St. Louis wrestling legends. And it just, yeah, just it's almost like almost a bit, <laughs> which it sounds weird, but almost a bit like the WWE are trying to reclaim all the fans of the non Jim Crockett area of the yeah. of the of the country, which is really interesting. Just a just a really interesting psyche, really, that WWF had at the time. Really strange. Yeah, very strange. Anything you made of this, Matt? <laughs> okay. Punishing. He's got cough and he keeps muting himself and he's doing a great job of hiding it. But he, be- I, I'm basically deliberately now making him speak so that he suffers. <laughs> I, I'm almost trying to speak as little as possible, which is very difficult when you're recording a podcast. Yeah, t- to be honest, um, wasn't really much for me this segment. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't really that sure of who those guys were either. Um, so I was like, huh, okay, you know, it, it just it was a little bit of filler to, just to kill time on the pay-per-view, really. You know, just a bit of harmless. It was fine. So next up, we've got the build-up video for Steve Austin. Sorry, we've actually got the six-man tag match, but we've spoken about that, so we'll skip yep. over it. Um, then we've got the build-up for Steve Austin versus Dude Love, the video package to build up to that match, which includes 
Uh, do love being presented by Vince McMahon as this new kind of corporate chosen one, if you like, to face Steve Austin for the title. It also shows him announcing himself as the referee for the match and his other cronies in key positions during the match. We then have Doc Hendricks interview Vince McMahon before the match. McMahon says he will call it down the middle, but if Austin assaults him at any point, he will call for the bell. DQ Austin and hand the title to Dude Love. He then says that he has only his hand will end the match. By his ma- his hand, the match will end. Um, so he makes very, very clear that there can no- be nobody else who kind of makes the pinfall or calls for the bell in any way. And there's also a thing in that, that pre-match video about how effectively... Uh, Vince McMahon's bragging about assaulting uh, Steve Austin. He does it in front of some police. And so Austin tells him, you're the stupidest son of a bitch. Go in. You've just admitted to assault me. Please arrest him. And they have to arrest Vince McMahon. And that was just super over stuff on Raw when it was happening. It was absolutely wild. And it's also the way as part of the condition for for Vince not to be taken away into pr- to prison, uh, Austin sets down some conditions, which include Vince allowing somebody to watch Austin's back to be to make sure Vince calls it down the middle, which we've heard them talk about on commentary during the course of the show. Any thoughts on all of this build and the interview? I mean, you talked earlier on about the storyline and I'm going to WF, and I think the storyline was so good. I remember watching a shoot interview with uh, Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara with Wade Keller, actually, yeah, um, who, which was very, very good, talking about how they sit down and do the do the writing while Jerry Springer was on. And the bit to get Vince arrested was so good. Like, that is such good. That's so nuanced and, and really well done. And I thought, again, this was, this was, this was a tremendous build-up video. And this was electric stuff at the time. Like, you just... Like it was all a bit new, like Vince was a heel and you, you knew it wasn't, you knew it wasn't, wasn't real, but like, you know, I, I almost like, is he, is something going to happen here that's not supposed to happen and is he going to get in trouble or whatever? There was all this weird stuff to it that made it feel very, very real in a, in a scripted environment. I thought, I thought this was, this was great. I, I, I've written at the end of my notes, what a time to be alive. And I think that's, that's, that's exactly this. To live through this was really, really special because Steve Austin really, I think he's the most over wrestler in North America ever. I think he has to be. I think he has to be. I think he's. I think his pops are above Hogan's. It's really interesting you should say what well, time to be alive because actually when you say it like that, I, you know, I really do feel like anyone who wasn't watching at the time will never understand how good this stuff was. Just they yeah. won't. They won't get it. They just won't get it because it, it was so. It was absolutely for two years must watch television yeah, like I, I would be furious if i missed an episode of raw and it yeah. was on at 10 o'clock on a friday night i was from about the age of 14 through to about 16 if if i couldn't get to the television at 10 o'clock on the friday night to watch raw i was fucking pissed off yeah because it was absolutely appointment television you could not miss an episode of raw by then and if you did you'd be fucked off the stuff they were doing was was just magical super over and as i said like really good episodic stuff i mean look i'm not in any way nobody knows who i am but if anyone knows who i am it's because probably of my interview with vince russo where i basically had a bit of a slanging match with him and you know attempted basically to get him to admit to some part in the the end creatively at least for wcw but i have to give him his props as part of the writing team that came up with this stuff during this period he did some absolutely phenomenal work some of the best work that's been done in pro wrestling as far as i'm concerned and this is all part of it that all the stuff with austin that they worked on with vince and vince vince russo himself will admit that vince mcmahon was a massive filter that they put everything through And where where he was super important, Vince McMahon, in my view, from what I can tell from the way Russo's booked out when he's not got that filter, is Vince was so 
eager to protect him at every single step because he knew he had to maintain him as a star. There was n- you couldn't play games with Austin. He no. had to be always shown to be the star, and they actually did it on this build. And uh, yeah, it's, it was just you. But you can't. I, I, I wish Matt like I could, I could impart the experience of having watched it at the time because you could go back and watch it, but you just wouldn't get it. Do you know? I, I get what you're saying there. I mean, I, I think if I was able to slightly pick up any idea of like particularly of how over austin was back in the day i think it was probably when i went to mania this year and that's probably when i got to see how truly popular steve austin really was so so that really was a sight to behold i mean this you know a promo video was fantastic i mean the one thing that i particularly enjoyed and and i gotta give vince's credit was when he was sort of apologizing you know to austin and then pretty much the second he can take it back takes it i didn't mean it you know, that, that was just classic Vin. So, yeah, th- th- this video was excellent. Really enjoyed it. So it leads to the main event, which is Steve Austin versus Dude Love for the WWF world title. I don't know why I call it the world title. They never do, but, you know. Sorry. Oh, I'm with you on that. I'm with you <laughs> on that big time. It's a WWF world title. It's Set and Power Slam. I tell you why I don't think they do. Everyone knows that in 1963, WWF, WWF left the NWA and had their own world champion, Bruno Sammartino. Uh, sorry, Buddy Rogers, sorry, was the champion they wanted to keep because he drew really well in the Northeast area. And the rest of the NWA wanted Luthez. What they don't tell you in most of WWF's official history is that they rejoined the NWA in like 1970 or something like that. Like, mm. like not that long after they moved away. And so theoretically, the WWF title wasn't a world title. It was just a regional title underneath the NWA world title for you know 13 14 years until Vince McMahon took them back out of the NWA in the 80s so I and I think it's just a legacy hangover from that I think they just called it that because they didn't used to call it a world title because it wasn't yeah and I've heard that Vince doesn't like uh, all the ridiculous things that you yeah sure I've heard that Vince liked World Wrestling Federation champion because he was of the thinking something along the lines of that's bigger than some the other world. wrestling company calling it the world title. So, yeah. so for this era, this era, I remember Power Slam would always have WWF World Champion, WWF World Heavyweight Champion, or whatever. That was always, and I would always, I remember one on the In Your House review I listened to. Uh, I'm not quite finished, but in the Kevin Nash promo, he called it World Title. I'm like, my ears pricked up because for mm. some reason I'm sensitive to that because it was something that I always got annoyed with. They didn't call it World Champion, but everywhere else, you, t- you hear Bret Hart talking about it. He talks about his first world championship. I This is what I don't understand, why that bloody belt is called the WWF Undisputed Universal Champion. It's like Vince has got a hard-on for Universal Champion. I don't understand it. Just call it Undisputed WWE World Champion like it was before. I just don't I don't get it. And, then, and on commentary, they say they talk about world championships. It's like, how do you explain this to somebody? Like, I, don't, I don't get it. It's really, it's really complicated, unnecessarily so. Sorry, mm-hmm. I've got off my soapbox on that one, yeah. But what's bigger than the universe? You know, well, nobody is bigger no, no, than the yeah. universal champion. Very UWF in 1986, to be honest. But there we go. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, WWF world title match. Referee is Vince McMahon. The guest ring announcer is Pat Patterson. And the guest timekeeper is Jelma Briscoe. Uh, it starts with Howard Finkel uh, introducing Pat Patterson. He's got a long introduction for Patterson, which includes him being the first WWF Intercontinental Champion after winning a tournament in Rio de Janeiro, which obviously is not a real tournament, didn't actually happen. Then Pat Patterson does a really long intro for Gerald Briscoe and a really long intro for Vince McMahon. 
I've got to be honest, I really quite enjoyed this. I thought this was really fun and really good heel stuff from Pat Patterson. Phenomenal. Absolutely brilliant. Pat Patterson, compare, I think it was being compared to Wayne Gretzky, a role model for children <laughs> and a friend to all. Just so, so good. And they gave you the full info on the Briscoe Brothers body shot. They showed the phone number, read it out. I was like, this, what, this, this start to finish was absolutely phenomenal this 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 whole presentation was incredible pat was very close to my mvp of the night very mm. close McMahon then when he gets in the ring slightly trips when he gets in the ring only very very slightly but gets a really annoyed look on his face all of a sudden and i couldn't tell whether it was a genuine annoyed face or just really good heel work one way or the other it added perfectly to the whole thing that was going on here i think he deliberately tripped okay yeah yeah, I really, I, I really I, think I'm willing to that. believe it. I'm willing to yeah. believe it because it just it makes it even better. It just looks really good. Um, the match itself, it goes 22. Oh, hang on. Before the match even starts, I should say, we then the lights go out and the Undertaker's music comes comes on. He walks to the ring and it's obviously that he's going to be the man who's going to make sure Vince McMahon calls this down the middle. The match itself goes 22 minutes, 22 and a half minutes, I should say. And uh, there's a big old finish to this. Do I go? I don't even know if I've got the energy to, to go through the big old finish. I'll do my best, but bear with me. There might be lots of ums and tripping over myself and goodness knows what else. So effectively, what happens is that <laughs> this is going to be a problem. Basically, what happens is Vince McMahon gets knocked out uh, by Dude Love when he goes to hit Austin with a steel chair. But Vince McMahon takes the chair to the skull. And my goodness, what a chair shot it is. Direct, unprotected to Vince McMahon's head unbelievable after Vince McMahon gets knocked out Steve Austin hits a stunner Mike Kyoto runs in to try and count the fall but Pat Patterson grabs him by the foot and drags him out of the ring and stops him from counting the fall then with Austin distracted by this going on Dude Love manages to apply the mandible claw as Austin's in the mandible claw Pat Patterson gets in the ring ostensibly to count the fall himself but the Undertaker pulls Pat Patterson out of the ring choke slamming for a table and makes Pat Patterson my MVP for the bloody fall that he takes on the choke slam he takes it like a fucking champion this is an absolutely brilliant chokeslam for a table so with pat patterson out of action uh dude love calls gerald briscoe into the ring to count the fall the same fate befalls gerald briscoe with all this going on uh, austin manages to once again stun dude love there's nobody to count the fall so austin grabs vince's hand forces him to count the three and austin retains and holds on to the championship matt let's go with you first see if we can get you through this <laughs> without too much uh more wear and tear on your throat I know. I have a funny feeling. I can even hear it myself now. I think my voice is starting to go lower as I talk more. Yeah, this was a really, really good main event. And it was probably, in fact, let's just go with it. This was the best thing on the show. I've got to be honest, at first, towards the start of the match, it took a little bit of time for me to get into it. I actually, when I first uh, remember watching, I thought it was actually better than I thought, but I was like, okay. But it, it was a good match. There was some one or two mistimed things between Foley and Austin, which I was a little bit confused about, but, but nothing major. But I've got to give credit where it's due. Uh, Dude Love is my MVP of the night for this. I just felt he was bumping all over the place for Steve here and just doing some really dangerous bumps at the same time as well. Uh, when he did a sunset flip off, you know, the one of the, the sets or, you know, the car's sets uh, onto the floor, that thud, I can still hear that thud now. It was sickening. There was no need to do that. And there was just a couple of bumps that he took that I just thought was so unnecessary. But he was obviously trying to do everything he could to help, you know, get Steve and, and the angle over. So 
props to him, fantastic. Yet Pascal and Briscoe, absolutely amazing as well. I mean, if there's only like one minor thing, and again, this is really minor, is that with, with Undertaker and Riggs, it's actually kind of funny more than sort of annoying. Just the way that he was a ringside, because there was so much going on, so many people walking around. He was just walking around like a deer in the headlights a couple of times. It was like you know, somebody who almost seemed lost. They're looking around like they don't, <laughs> don't really know what they were doing. And it's like, just get out of the way. <laughs> just get out of the way, you know, let them do their thing. Yeah, otherwise, this was the match of the night. Like I said, Doodler was my MVP of the night. Uh, Vince's T-shirt, uh, referee T-shirt, was very nearly my MVP of the night. <laughs> um, but yeah, o- overall, th- th- this was a major thumbs up. This was great. His, his ref shirt did have a heck of a job keeping all that that bulk in because uh, yeah. he is a ripped guy. What a, what a shirt though! I mean, good god, because they have shrunk that anymore. <laughs> He's got all the best protein shakes, so not surprising, is it really? <laughs> I, I went going back to the ring announcement. I went to say this point when we talked about it. Patterson said that Vince McMahon made all of their lives worth living, giving them hope, love, and understanding, and the world to say, "Yes, I can." Just absolutely incredible. Um, Austin got the double pop here, so the glass broke. Little bit of little bit of anticipation, and then they erupted even more when he came out. I just thought, this guy, bloody hell! And I actually went back and watched this a second time because I just needed, I needed, I needed more of this in my life. And um, there was a weird sign in the crowd during this one. There's a lady with a short style, and dare I say it. Princess Diana, about 1990 haircut. She had a crop top on um, that had Stone Whip My Ass. Um, I don't think his name's Stone, so you probably could have gone with Steve there. It might have made more sense. And as I said, what a, t- what a time to be alive. The crowd ate this up. I don't think I'm overblowing this to say this is probably one of the better main events of this entire era. If you're talking about, what, Attitude Era, maybe early 97 to... It depends when you depends when you cut it off, really, but... Invasion pay for your WrestleMania 17 or whatever. This has got to be in the top five or certainly top ten. It's definitely this... one of Austin's very best main events. Yeah, it is. There were more bells and whistles this than I remember, but I really, really enjoyed it. And I just thought, I mean, Steve Austin, the MP, MVP of this for me, maybe even my life, because I, I don't <laughs> know. It, without him, I've had so much enjoyment out of wrestling, so much, and just met loads of great people, travelled everywhere. Not everywhere. I've been to Antarctica to watch wrestling, so I've, I've, I've as hyperbole there. But I've had such a good time, and I really, don't, I think that I might have had a passing interest in wrestling. But Steve Austin was the person that really, really got me hooked again, and then I got back into Bret Hart and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, loved him, always will do. And yeah, this was this was absolutely superb. Yeah, I, I think it's a great, great match, and I think. What's interesting for me about it is that, I'm gonna, and, and this is what I was talking about earlier, I'm going to have to rip a little bit on on modern pro wrestling or today's pro wrestling. And I think it, the thing that the, the thing that I'm most bothered by, not I think it's the worst thing, but the thing I'm most bothered by is the obsession with a certain group of wrestlers that occupy the top of AEW's roster, really. It's probably my big issue. The Daniel Bryan, Adam Cole, Kenny Omega, in fact, everybody who matters in AEW, Axis, Every single one of them, every one wrestles exactly the same as everybody else. They've got some mild nuanced differences about them. They do slightly different moves, but none of them wrestle like their character actually is. Austin and Dude Love, or Austin and Foley here, wrestle exactly as per their character would. And in if, in fairness to Austin, his technical quality of his matches was nowhere near as good after he had the neck injury mm. it was before he had the neck injury um and that's 
partially because he had to he had to make it different but it actually massively helped him become a bigger star if he had been the technical wrestler he'd been prior to the neck injury i don't believe austin would have been anywhere near as popular this is how stone cold steve austin would wrestle as a person as a character this is how the the mad mick foley would wrestle his matches regardless of which one of his incarnations he wrestled as the undertaker at the time wrestled like the undertaker would wrestle in character and they all wrestled a different style as a consequence of that that's just not happening anywhere in wrestling right now there are not people wrestling like their character wrestle they're all wrestling in the same way ultimately that Meltzer likes and I'm, I'm not blaming on Meltzer I'm not that's not what I'm doing but I'm saying it's almost like Meltzer has in some ways defined what is actually seen as being good in wrestling and so everyone is now trying to do that style none of them are wrestling in character if they're heels they're not wrestling like heels if they're a specific they haven't really got really defined characters in fact most of them are defined by the fact that they are good wrestlers and that's yeah. it it's why i really struggle with modern pro wrestling because it's so hard to latch on emotionally when that's all these all these people are about and that's all that matters i think the reason why lots of people are kind of getting a bit fed up maybe even of AEW, is that as i've said before all they're doing is presenting to you dream match after dream match and you're like well that's not that's not interesting <laughs> you know I, I and i equate it to football for example like over the weekend as we're recording this is just at the premier league's last day of the season right when when you watch the last day of the premier league season there's a built-in context to why that matters you understand fully why that matters and there could be a really boring one all draw or, or one nil win for in a match that really matters and it makes such a big difference it could still like people would still go mad for it if you had a two of the best teams in the world and they, they went to a five four match but it was a friendly mm. it wouldn't it makes no difference it's, it's a great analogy no yeah. one gives a fuck about that it doesn't matter how good the match is it's what's riding on it that matters and that's for me what really stood out about this match is technically it's not that great it's it's really good it's really dramatic it's it's brutal in places it's the fans are mad for everything there's some great spots as i said the pat passing going for a table is just i'm glad they did it in the replay they showed it because it's just so fucking good it's unbelievable mm. but it's really about the fact that there's something riding on it because people emotionally care about austin winning and not just 60% of the audience or 50% of the audience, 99% of the audience wants Steve Austin to win. Probably 100% of the audience, quite frankly. There is no deny, there's no doubting it whatsoever. And that's why it's a great match. It's got nothing really to do with the technical quality. It's about just the the, the, the fever, the fervor that's going yeah. on around them uh, is just phenomenal. So that's what really stuck out to me. That's, that's That was what really stuck out. I, I completely agree with a lot of you said. And, and, and for me, CM Punk's one of my favorite. By the time this comes out, he may be, may be AEW world champion. He got a pay-per-view in a, what, a week, a week's time with him, one of my all-time favorites, probably third maybe of all, all time. And he's challenging for the world title, and I'm not into it. And there's something very wrong when you when you when they were doing a show in the, in Daly's place in front of nobody, and that was you wanted to watch that more than you do now. Mm. There's something fundamentally wrong with that promotion, and and I and I do agree. I think that um, Kenny, I think they've, I think if if you say Kenny Omega and New Japan's 100%, I don't think they've even got to 50% with him. They had a babyface thing with him. I think his best within his was the tag team with Paige actually. That was the best version of him so far because the heel stuff was like it's just it's just Kenny being a bit of a dick, but he's wrestling the same way and it's like he cheats a little bit, but it's just it's just him. That yeah. that was never what he was in New Japan. Like him at his peak in New Japan was was kind of a tweener 
tweening baby face towards the end and that was his best his best role really but they had they, they, they must they mucked it up anyway sorry tangent on modern wrestling yeah this show this this end of the show was great so that's what needs to be said really it was great so um after the match um austin and taker face each other down preparing for their summer program with each other which would be really the only main event match they could possibly do for SummerSlam because they had nothing else this was mm. it this was the these were their two main event guys so they really couldn't do anything else for SummerSlam. and again talk talking about story storytelling there's two periods of wf that are my favorite the first one is in 2000 which i think is their creative and in-ring peak the, yeah. the time when both of the those two things converged and made something magical and it is my favorite period of wrestling this year is my second favorite period of wrestling 99 i think is actually a bit of a poor year but 98 i think is magical mainly because they had a necessity to be really creative because they had no they didn't have a roster the roster was dreadful mm. and they didn't have any main eventers so they had to make a story between austin and undertaker that could be engaging for three months to build up to SummerSlam because they had nothing else they couldn't they couldn't give it away over the course of two three months they couldn't give it away at king of the ring they couldn't give it away at one of the in your houses they had to wait to SummerSlam because the only one match that fitted the bill so the, in order to get there they had to be super super um creative and they and they really were you think with this so you had you had Taker and Austin involvement in May. You had you had Taker and uh, Austin involvement in June with the Kane and Austin match. Yep. You had Austin and Taker teaming in July. You had mm-hmm. Austin versus Taker in August. You had the three-way in September, and then you had the match with Austin's referee in October. And there was a lot. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't you know it wasn't the most amazing storyline in the history of wrestling, but it kept you interested all the way. I remember when Steve Austin was fired after that trip, that that match in Undertaker. It wasn't a great match. But I was interested in what happened next. I was yes. bought in. I wanted to see Raw. And that is kind of it. And all those pay-per-views, I think this pay-per-view did 250,000 buys. What would AEW give? Punk and Hangman Page are going to do 100 if they're lucky because no one's into the product at the moment. What they would give to get this. You put your hat. I mean, I'm, I'm buying it, Matt. So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be one of the 100,000. But people aren't into it like they were this. This B-level pay-per-view got... 250,000. There's not too many UFC pay-per-views that do that now. So, yeah, quite incredible, really. Yeah, it was one of the lowest pay-per-view buy rates of the year as well, this was. Yeah, there you go. Yep, interesting. Matt, were you go- are you going to buy the AW? Are you going to watch AW, Matt, uh, pay-per-view? I am. I- I've certainly heard some of, the- some of the AW criticism. In terms of the TV show, yeah, t- to be honest, I-, I do tend to agree. The-, the pay-per-views, however, I always feel that the pay-per-views are, are really worth watching. And do you know what? Of-, of all the people, and this is me going off on a very slight tangent, which I'll do very briefly it was one of the things i meant to bring up earlier when we were sort of um talking about heels one of the reasons i watch um aew or at least i stick with the pay-per-views on a regular basis is mjf for me personally who's probably one of the one of the best guys in the business at the moment 100 percent, you know that's the definition of a heel today he's as close to what you're gonna get i don't know if anybody's seen the clip on the internet I, i'm sure i think you might have seen it ben i'm sure you commented on it of you know a fan who presented him some artwork yeah and you know they were like oh you know that's that's really cool you know how long did he work on this she was like oh for hours and he just with a big black pen just puts a cross through it uh, yeah I, I loved it i loved it and i i do genuinely like mgv i do appreciate what he's doing because he's a heel who is trying to stay heel mm. and doing everything he can to stay heel which is just so rare these days but i do appreciate that it's interesting because what you were talking about then Stephen, especially about the pay-per-view buy rate is going to be my kind of summary of the show so i'm giving this a six out of a ten 
at six out of ten i think it's a decent show it's not amazing there's some shit on it there's some weird stuff there's not a lot of great wrestling underneath there's a very very fun main event and that's the best thing it's a one match card as i said at the beginning it's a one match card and that one match is perfect delivers exactly what everyone wants not just in terms of quality but in terms of who won and that Mm, really does matter and what i was going to say is that coming back to your point about the fact that AEW would love to get 250,000 buys for a pay-per-view is that having watched this and i thought this before but this really brought home to me was good technical pro wrestling in the ring has no bearing whatsoever or very little bearing whatsoever on the success of a wrestling promotion sure it can help if you have good in-ring product it can help but it is about the fourth or fifth most important thing that you can do to create a successful wrestling promotion uh, certainly at national level like AEW are trying to do right now and the things that are more important are character and storyline and genuine investment in what the hell's going on day week to week in the story of the of the of the people involved now that doesn't necessarily mean they have to have soap style storylines i'm not necessarily saying that they can build storylines around the sporting conceit that AEW has and they have a really strong sporting conceit they have win loss records when's the last time you saw a, a, a national wrestling promotion stick with that and keep it going and continue to publish that i think that's great they can do you can do all the kind of tournaments you can set up number one contenders matches all that stuff is fine you can still do it around the sporting conceit of stuff but AEW try to be both soap opera and sporting and the soap opera stuff they get so badly wrong because they just have their characters act randomly for no reason most of the time and so this is the key to it is the context and the story that you put this stuff around and the wrestling isn't that important to making a really successful wrestling promotion wwe and austin in particular where austin was pretty much at the hottest he would ever be at this point for the next six months the company would just continue to get more popular over the next 18 months right into 2000 when i think they did pretty much their record year in terms of raw ratings and at this point the wrestling quality of the product is in the toilet and it would be right the way through the following year it is not a good wrestling product they're still featuring big boss man quite heavily in like 1999 and he's he's dreadful he's washed up you've seen the wrestling quality on here most of it is average at best and some of it is absolutely god awful and that's the way it was for most of this year and for most of the next year it didn't matter that was not important to the success of wwf and this was a time don't forget when wwe was able to boast the benoits and guerreros and jerichos and ray mysterios of this world week in week out on nitro didn't matter a fig because wws product was so watchable and so enjoyable and so entertaining because the characters you could invest in you could enjoy you could get involved in and you didn't have to care about the quality of the match that wasn't the important thing Um, and i think it's a lesson that wrestling desperately needs to learn both AEW and WWE, to be honest, because I think WWE lean on their own in-ring product far too much as well these days, even though it's not as free creatively as AEW's, there's still far too much emphasis on match quality than story quality and character quality and, and ultimately emotional investment. This card really got me thinking about it because there's so many instances where I was like, why don't people do that anymore? Why are we why are we bogged down with oh how how many stars will cm punk and adam page get in the main event of the pay-per-view i don't care about that and there's no value in that there's nothing there's nothing tangible to hold on to no one's going to remember in three years time that adam page and cm punk did a five-star match they're going to remember the emotional investment in it if anything some people will but not enough not enough people care about that stuff to make a truly successful national promotion 
and they're not doing particularly good promos on the way in. I, I, I've got a slight tweak on your view, Ben, but I'm, I'm on the same lines. I think it, I think it's about stars. So my, my favourite promotion yeah. over the last 20 years is New Japan, I think. 20 years? Probably 15 years. And what is what was New Japan? So New Japan got hot again because of Tanahashi. And Tanahashi, I'd say, is one of the best of all time. But it's different with Japanese wrestlers. It's not, you, you haven't got the promos they have. But there's, the guy is dripping charisma. No one sells like Tanahashi. Like you can watch a match and you're getting you're getting the story there, even if you're watching Japanese commentary. And then from Tanahashi, you had Okada and you had the great feud with them. And then you had, you had then you had Abushi and Omega and all the rest of them and the juniors. And it, and you just had this perfect storm where you had high level wrestling action, but you had over people. You'd go and you'd watch a show and they'd be like, everyone would be getting good reaction because they they've just been built and everything meant something. And I think. That's the way to do American wrestling is to make everything mean something. Lean on the UFC. Do this is what we talked about earlier on in terms of WF or China and things. AEW and WWE do do pro wrestling exactly the way that WCW and WF did 24 years ago. It's in an arena. It's promos. It's backstage. It's skits. Do something different. Do a do 20 minutes on somebody. Do a little backstage thing. Do like a UFC countdown show. Do something. But the thing is now, wrestling will never be... I'm not sure anything will ever be mainstream again because of the choices. Like, you might... Um, Matt, you might be watching a, a you know documentary on a band you really like, and I'll be watching like a 20 minute golf vlog on YouTube, and Ben, you'll be watching something completely different because there's so much stuff that we can watch. So I don't, I'm not sure it's ever going to get there, but it's, it has to be about creating stars. Now, two of the stars up-and-coming stars they've got. Darby Allen lost to Jeff Hardy on TV a couple of weeks ago. And Jungle Boy's been stuck in a tag team for ages. It's like these two young people that were getting over. I remember when they both challenged for the title. It's like, people are into these people. They're stuck. And you've got all these new characters. It's like, Tony Khan's booking style is, let's have some surprises and let's throw a load of matches out where the outcome's pretty clear and people are like, oh yeah, what a good match. This is awesome, blah, blah, blah. doesn't matter. There's no meaning to it. No one cares. And in the end, your ratings are down 300,000 because you're trying to do 100 things at once and you've got no focus. I do agree that your absolute stars are the most important thing. Mm. And ultimately, Austin was a massive star. And I've said before, it's the hardest thing in the world to create a star in pro wrestling. When you do, you do everything you can to protect that star. You do not do anything that harms them. And and I talked about that when we said about Vince McMahon being the filter for Vince Russo's writing. Vince McMahon did yeah. absolutely protect Steve Austin at every turn. He would do the same with The Rock once The Rock became... The, the, the other big star of the time um i think you're probably right though austin probably was the most over star of all time Stephen, what were your what was your summary and, and score for the show six out of ten for me as well i thought this was by far the most watchable um show i've done on on the podcast and i think again this is just a great time this is this is a brilliant time in wrestling one of my favorite times to be a fan and i just wish i'd been a little bit older and i could have gone some of this stuff live but then i would be <laughs> older now so perhaps yeah you know, swings and roundabouts matt um, well, you'll be happy to know that I agree with you in terms of the score of the show. Um, I also gave it a 6 out of a 10. And just very briefly, just to touch on some of the stuff that you guys mentioned there, my answer is going to be a little bit of a cop-out, <laughs> to, to be honest, because I, I I get where you're both coming from. I, I think there needs to be a combination of both, uh, of pretty much what you said, really. Because I'm, I'm pretty much a match quality kind of guy for the most part if I'm being totally honest for me I do feel that is something that is quite important but then absolutely on the other hand you do need to have the story there as well because otherwise what is the point again one of the things that I go back to is the Johnny Gargano Tommaso Ciampa food is probably my favorite food do you know in fact I'll, I'll just go say that's probably my favorite food ever 
in wrestling. I just felt that was, in terms of a modern day audience, I felt that was the perfect food for you know today's typical wrestling audience. And it blended fantastic wrestling action with perfect storytelling. That's how it's done. That is what I would point to to somebody to say, this is what wrestling is today. So, yeah, it does definitely need to be sort of a, a marriage of, of both of the those sort of concepts. And whether or not AEW will get there, I mean, you know, t- t- time will tell. Um, I, I, I personally, I have faith. I actually think they will be able to do it because there have been some sparks of brilliance every, every now and again. And I do feel they're willing to try things really out of the box. One of the things that particularly uh, springs to mind, again, sort of name dropping MJF here, is a while ago when he did him and Chris Jericho were doing their sort of singing segment, whatever the hell that was, um, on AEW. I don't know if you've seen the the YouTube video of it, but the, the pair of them basically doing yeah, like a Broadway it. number <laughs> in the middle of a show, which was absolutely bizarre. But it was something different and new. And that's probably one of the most memorable things that I've got from there over the last couple of years. So it, it definitely worked. So is is the fact that this really weird singing segment between Jericho and MGF one of the most memorable things from the last couple of years a good thing? That's, that's <laughs> a good. <laughs> that's a good. But you know what? It was entertaining as hell. It really was. I mean, I I I don't have any faith that AEW would do. It. I don't think Tony Khan has a clue how to be a book successful wrestling promotion i think he can book great shows don't get me wrong i think he can book great shows and don't go i'm not immune to match quality all right i want high match quality i want really good technical wrestling but it's so secondary in terms of building an audience that is not the most important thing by a long shot and that's the point i'm making is that it's not that i don't think it's important it's not that i don't think it's not that i don't want it i do want technical match quality but you have to i think in some ways given what people consider to be good technical match quality now you have to sacrifice that a little bit in order to get to where i think wrestling needs to be because you need wrestlers to wrestle like their character are and that would stop them that would prevent them from having a match like adam cole and johnny gargano did for example because they'd have to have characters that meant something that then wrestled like those characters would rather than just the dave Meltzer style wrestling match which is what they had so that's how i feel about it anyway i think khan's booking is donezo jump the shark He's, he's not coming back. That's what I think. <laughs> Genuinely, that's I, what I think. The only thing that can save now is Kenny coming back and then booking him right. But I've got no... Ever since Rampage, the promotion's lost it. Because the first thing I do every Thursday when I was working from home is I watch Dynamite at 7am. And now, if I get through a Dynamite, don't ever watch Rampage, it's surprising. I'm, I'm fast forward in a lot of segments. So, tell, yeah. yeah. I tell you what the problem is for me as well. They've got the extra hour of television. But since then everything on both shows seems super rushed they do mm. not focus on anything for any level length of time the the thing that the abiding view for me of AEW is some major angle attack turn something happens and within five seconds it's excalibur going and next we've got so and so and they just moved on They've moved mm. on from it. And you're like, fucking hell, like dwell on this for 10 minutes. This is massive. Don't move away in five seconds. Yeah. And it was really interesting. I did at the beginning of the year, started watching Raw from the beginning of 98 through to WrestleMania. And there's an episode, I think two, three weeks out from WrestleMania 14. And it starts with a match between Cactus Jack and Terry Funk. They have a match. Cactus Jack jumps off the, off the uh, Titan Tron into a dumpster onto Terry Funk. The New Age Outlaws run out, push the dumpster off the thing. They focus on that for 40 minutes of the show, mm. to start the show. And 
it was a great visual. The fans are instantly going mad. You've got loads of people breaking character coming out to make sure that the two wrestlers are okay. So you've got like heels coming out and making sure they're okay. You've got other heels telling the New Age Outlaws they've gone too far. They should never have done that. Jerry Lawler, heel commentator, saying you, you, this is far too far. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not some like lovey whatever. But this, this, you shouldn't be doing that. You're putting these guys right lives at risk. It is magnificent, really watchable television. And they've had one segment, and that's it. And then mm. they've just reacted to it aw's got to spend more time reacting to what's happened on the screen and make it mean something make it feel like it means something even if you know even if you can con people into thinking things are important if you actually pretend they are but if you're constantly moving away from everything after five seconds you'll never convince anyone that anything means anything right wow philosophical as always uh i've i've been, te- I've been tending towards that recently i think I've, what tends to happen with me is i tend to get more philosophical about wrestling the least the, the more i dislike what i'm seeing in modern day wrestling mm. just it just it, it happens that is everything we've got to cover on the show um thank you both for joining me starting with you Stephen. thanks for joining us once more no problem anytime thank you very much for having me was this was this a bit better in terms of quality you've yeah, been very very vocal about the previous quality yeah, this is this is an enjoyable show. So yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm a bit glad I didn't get NXT. NXT Brooklyn, bring it on. I'd love to do that one. So yeah, ca- come on. I, I'm gonna at some point, Ben. You've got to do New Japan. You've got to do New Japan. So I know you said maybe next year, but yeah. I'm a, I'm I, what I'm trying to do. Well, we've got two or three different podcasts that that we are that I'm unofficially kind of in in community with. Yours is one, and yeah. we don't we don't really we're never in any danger of covering the same stuff because you're obviously mid south and occasionally Japan Japanese stuff and whatnot. James Trupenny and the Trupenny show, they do the Japanese stuff and I don't want to mm. step on their toes. They're yeah, covering fair, that and they and not only that, we couldn't even compete with that. Like they're doing their stuff. They know their shit. We're not going to go there. And and also I'm not sure how fun it would be. Because... Well that's the problem with New Japan. Unless you're doing a, a serious review, it doesn't really work, does it? And I think that exactly. doesn't doesn't let, exactly. lend itself to we just be if it was like a really good show, we'd be sitting again. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. yeah, great. I loved it. Next, it's like what else is the show? Would be over in fifteen minutes. Exactly. You can't just say this is really good. You've got to yeah. have some other perspective on it, and I don't think we would. And the other one is Wrestling Twenty Years Ago podcast, which we don't cover anything from the year that they're covering currently. So mm. we last year we didn't do anything from two thousand and one. This year we're not doing anything from two thousand and two because they are covering that as they go, as uh, okay. if they're in real time. So basically, I'm just avoiding that. And there's no there's no no, no official agreement with any of these other podcasts i just feel like it makes a lot of sense to just you know stay away from that territory that mm-hmm. somebody else is covering that at the moment so i don't know if new japan's likely i have thought about it maybe doing a wrestle kingdom at some point in the next couple of years but but i'm not convinced we'd have to we'd have to pick out perhaps the very best one and go with that i don't know maybe and matt thank you for your time as well today thank you very much gentlemen i'm just glad that my voice managed to hold out yeah, I hope it. Uh, I hope it returns before next week when you're on again, Matt. You've been a been a stalwart the last uh, few weeks. It's been uh, very, very good to have you uh, uh, on as much as you have been. Um, oh no, you're not on again next week. I'm lying, aren't I? You're not on next week. I'm I'm getting confused. I think you're I, on the week I, after. I forget the schedule. Well, yeah, we've, we've, <laughs> we we know about that. We know that. I think I don't think you are on next week, but you're going to be on back in a couple of weeks' time. So uh, we'll see you then. And this has been the Random Wrestling Review. We'll be back again next week. But until then. Take care.